Hello, Heron. Yes. So, so yes. <laughs> well, um, I'll, I'll start off with my usual question. Do you have any? Do you have any topics? Do you have anything that you want to discuss? Oh, you know, I thought I did. I actually wrote something down, but I, I have to, uh, I have to go find it now. <laughs> Do you want me to give you a minute? I can give you a minute. No, no, I don't need a minute because it's just in, in a document right here, and there it is. Okay, yeah. Ah, okay. Well, actually, you know. I was sort of stunned by that 5,000 figure that you mm -hmm. threw out there. What exactly does that mean? That means 5,000 unique IP addresses over the period of a month touching uh, the XML feed. Okay, so 5,000? Yeah, 5,000 and change. I think it was something like five and a quarter. Yeah, well, whatever. I mean, it, the fact that it's more than a couple hundred surprises the hell out of me. Well... You know, don't uh, let it be surprising. The stats are good associated with the Facebook group. You typically get about one percent of folks who actually listen and consume on a regular basis deciding to actively participate. So I think that's you know that fits in with the kind of numbers that I'm expecting. Okay, so well, really, yeah. So these people, you say they've checked in where? So there's an XML feed that connects to iTunes and various other podcatchers uh -huh. that people implicitly link up to when they subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or through their various XML readers, podcatchers, etc. Uh, uh -huh. So, so these are these 5,000 people are, are people who actually went out of their way to subscribe to this thing that didn't just sort of stumble onto it somehow or Well, they may have stumbled onto it, but yes, they have actively they've actively hit the XML feed associated with the record. Okay. And that means what? They just get a notification? No, that means that uh, if they have it on their iOS device or if they have it on their Mac or Windows machine or maybe even Linux in some circumstances, they will automatically download the audio oh, okay. of each show. So it yeah. doesn't necessarily translate to listeners. No, but they still I'm 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 appalled. Well, where the hell are these people? Why aren't why aren't you guys coming in here and giving us a hell and asking us questions and shit. <laughs> well, it's an interesting phenomenon, actually, because, I mean, this has been my experience with a variety of things. I mean, Model Rail Radio is a good example, open source software. A wide variety of the things that I do have this kind of fractional percent. Mm. I mean, the fact that there's one But those are so f so focused, though. This we, we are so all over the goddamn place here that... Uh, it's it's just hard for me to imagine. I mean, like model. Well, of course, the model railroad people that I've met certainly don't meet my stereotypes of it. But yes. you know, I'm wondering who the hell is listening to this stuff. <laughs> it's a good question. It's a valid question, <laughs> and it's a question that unfortunately we can't really answer. I can get more demographics. I mean, I can get more country information and these kind of things. But unfortunately, that's about the best I can do. It's pretty anonymous. Yeah. Well, no, but still, that's fascinating. I mean, those numbers are huge. It seems to me. I, I mean, I mean, it's in line with all the stuff I've always talking about. We're a small percentage, but that's still a lot of people. <laughs> you yes. know, and 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 is this in really indicative that we're actually sort of smoking out our brothers and sisters <laughs> out there that they're beginning to accumulate here? I'm not sure. I mean, it's been it's been less than a year since we've resumed the podcast. I think. And when we resumed the podcast, it was, I think, 1,500 and change. It wasn't that many. 
But that's about fifteen hundred still. I mean, after well, three I mean, years of not doing anything, there was still. No, there was. We were off for a year and a half. There well, were, we we had a good run initially, and then we came back at a year and a half later. Okay. So well, yeah, yeah. I, I, anyway, that's just very encouraging that that uh, that many people are listening. You know, I mean, maybe it's just a good laugh to a bunch of them. That <laughs> could very well Possibly be. They, so. they think this is a comedy show. <laughs> I thought it was a comedy show. What this oh, is right, a comedy what, show? What, yeah, really. You mean this isn't a comedy show? Yeah. That's right. That's right. Remember, we're we're uh, what did I say? We're putting the B back in banal, or we're taking out? No, we're taking it out. That's right. <laughs> I thought we were putting it back in, but anyway, oh, no, I can never that. keep it straight. What which, what we're doing? <laughs> what we're doing to banal? But yeah, I I mean my reflections associated with the 5,000 and change number is, I think that factors into the kind of outreach that I've been trying to do. And obviously, I mean, both implicitly and explicitly, listeners have also drummed up a variety of interests within their own particular community. Well, if they're really listening to this stuff, they've got to be weird. You know, I mean, there's so many other more normal things to be doing <laughs> than listening to this. Well, I don't know, Aaron. I mean, my view is that actually, if you look at the... I, I'm seriously, I think when we reach show 100, I'm seriously going to uh, contact Sirius Radio and uh, NPR and see if they have any interest in this stuff. Because compared to the stuff they're putting out, we're actually, you know, we, we work on a focused show here. And it's well, in in some way, yeah, 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 yeah. It's certainly not for everybody. I mean, so it's focused in that sense. <laughs> Following the Lorraine Devoted show last uh, last recording, she gave us the feedback that it's our it's the fact that she can't predict what direction we're going yeah, to take I read this that. thing. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, she's just not good at predicting. That's all. Yeah, no, my my spiritual advisor is very good at predicting the the Stone line with regards to a variety of things. So. Yeah, yeah, I'm I'm pretty predictable in a lot of ways that way. Certainly. But I well anyway yeah that's another story anyway no that was that just really struck me when I read those those numbers I uh, was pleased and surprised. Yeah, I'll get the demographic. I'll get the regional demographic. That would be interesting. As well, yeah, any information would yeah. be would be. Interesting, you know. Uh, is there any way we can get more information? Is there any way we can encourage? Well, I'm doing it by saying it, encouraging these people to participate. Let us know who you are. Well, I think there's it, a good portion of them that are sufficiently, you know, Joe the drama esque that they probably won't be on Facebook. So maybe we're actually cultivating a listenership that will be. Uh, I don't know, down, downloading it off pirated Wi-Fi in a Starbucks <laughs> and, you know, going on the lamb for the remainder of their time. They get their yeah. updates of Stone Ape when they emerge from their caves. Yeah. I don't know. But it's interesting, actually, because I think the Facebook group gives me a good indication of the potential kinds of listeners that we have. Yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I find the people, uh, like I say, I, I'm really enjoying the uh, Facebook page. Uh, the stuff we get there, I mean, it's a small number of people, but those people are asking and thinking about, I think, interesting things. Hmm. And, uh, and that's just very encouraging. It would just be nice if there were a lot more people whose names we'd never <laughs> seen before. Well, yeah. we're, we're gathering like t- two to five a week on the Facebook page. Really? Really? Yeah, it seems, the numbers seem to be going up. You seem to be putting through most of them. So yeah, I think, you know. We're getting there, but we'd like to hear more from listeners. Not that we don't like the listeners we've already heard from. Oh, we, yeah, we just want to dilute you a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, yes, yes. So we have a wide variety of questions from listeners. I have a variety of questions. I wanted to... Uh, t- Lorraine has supplied a good number of questions this evening. And Lorraine is just doing her part, man. Good <laughs> job, Lorraine. Yeah. I think she will try to keep uh, being unpredictable. (laughs) She seems to wander (laughs) through the world just waiting to find things that are applicable to Stone Ape. So thank you very much, Lorraine. I'll, I'll start with this one. In 2009, Tom wrote, Second Insight, Simulation. Oh, this is from my, what's it called? Eight Brain Narcissism Misses the Singularity. So she's quoting that, uh, that particular text. A simulation is any environment with applied constraints. And this was a means that I used to actually analyze a series of things in the uh, quote-unquote real world associated with the underlying elements of simulation that I'd developed through developing Noble 8 for, by that point, you know, 13-odd years. And uh, Lorraine says, does Gaia fit in this definition? Given Gaia as a nickname for uh, the totality of Earth's complex systems... Well, I think it probably does. I mean, I've been relatively sympathetic to the idea of Gaia. And in the context of my, you know, simulation, what do you say, philosophy, uh, certainly the Gaia concept. In fact, I wrote um, associated with the structures of complex environments indicating life. And you can zoom out to the Earth and get uh, components of the Earth actually, to indicate life very strongly. So, yes, I think it all fits together. What what was your yeah. thought associated with... I mean, we've never really delved too deeply into my kind of deeper philosophy of being a monkey in a simulation, but more importantly, yeah. that you can use a variety of techniques that you glean from simulation to actually explore things like the legal system, the road system, um, you know, a variety of systems as being fundamentally simulations that you can, yeah. you know, explore and tinker with through those things. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I really don't have much of a comment on this, I'll, except during that, the, the thought came to me to recommend the book to all of our readers and to you in particular, Tom, because I'd love to get your opinion of it. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's a book called Computer Theology. Oh, okay. Have we, we, we've probably talked about it. I have think we, we talked have. About no, we haven't. Are you familiar with it? Uh, no, I'm not. Well, all I can say is I started reading it about a year and a half ago, and it took me almost two months to read the first 30 pages mm-hmm. because I'd have to put it down and stop and think <laughs> and then reread the paragraph and then reread. It's the densest book I think I've ever, you know, if, if you look at books as a combination of ideas and glue <laughs> that holds it all together, mm-hmm. and it, this is like, and most stuff is like 5% idea, 95% glue. This is just the opposite. It is so dense, or at least the first parts of it are anyway. Um, I'm just having a ball struggling with. It. I, anyway, I pick, I put it down because it was I was just overwhelmed with it and started reading some e- easier things. <laughs> but I've come back to it and I'm going to go through it this time. So the book is computer theology. Can computer you give, theology. Can you give a rough overview of what one will find in computer theology? I'm, I'm not sure I can. Okay. <laughs> I'm, I've only read a hundred pages of it so far. Um, well. It, it's a, he's looking at religion as a, as a natural biological phenomenon, an evolutionary developed, um, aspect of human behavior and looking at it as an organizational principle, a way to, for monkeys to organize themselves. 
and um and he, and then he's looking at computers and asking whether or not the way computer systems work might uh, if they're both evolutionary products then are are there any similarities that we can find useful and to our advantage maybe maybe that's part of it anyway well there are certainly a series of monastic traditions associated with both the creation and the development around computers and i mean i think that is an interesting exploration to take a kind of theological study associated with the creation of computers but also the kinds of folk that have I guess would traditionally have entered, I mean, if it's interesting, actually, I I frequently think about if I wasn't a software engineer, you know, if I existed, existed, (laughs) you know, 200 years ago or 400 years ago, what kind of stuff would interest me? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I really, it's a little weird still for me to say it out loud, but actually I think of myself as a monk, really. Hmm. You know, the things that most people find interesting uh, are, are just nothing to me. You know, career, family, money, you know, all that shit. I mean, it's nice to have a roof over your head and mm-hmm. enough to eat and all that. But uh, none of that really motivates me. What motivates me is trying to figure out what the hell's going on. Hmm. <laughs> and, um, and that strikes me as pretty much um, being a monk. Yeah, it's always interested me the lack of curiosity that the general public has in what's going on, or at least the yeah. perception of that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's what I mean by it. That, that is the definition of a language monkey. Yeah. Someone who just accepts their programming and, uh, is, and never has any reason to question it, or at least – although I suspect most people do, but they find that too scary and therefore repress it. Yes. I mean, the historical relationship – with religion as a means of, you know, providing small answers. circular answers to yeah, yeah. a series of to people who don't problems. really, yeah, want to want to really look too carefully. Religion is wonderful. <laughs> yes, yes. So Chris Abbott emailed me through the week. He gave me an appeal, in fact, associated with "Could we please cover the impending doom of the army of language monkeys against the <laughs> oh, few?" Yeah. yeah. And uh, I reflected on because I, I'd given a pretty strong rebuttal to this discussion and the fact that we'd always, I mean, this is a familiar theme through these recordings, but I did want to yeah. say a few things in this light. Yeah. The first is, I think, and this is part of the When the Flowers Died narrative as well, that we hold a lot more uh, control, for want of a better term. We being who? The, the non, well, the, the non-language, the non-language monkey. The people who are trying to think anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right, okay. Then we would allow ourselves to believe. I mean, this notion that we are fundamentally disempowered yeah. by numbers oh, no, isn't I'm, necessarily yeah. the case in terms of our ability to, you yeah. know, think outside I'm the optimistic. In the long run, yeah. the, the only issue is just how ugly is it going to get until we win? Mm. <laughs> That's the issue. Well, Chris seems to think that it's going to be a post-apocalyptic bloodbath, well, that's, and he that's seems only a possibility. He seems to be extremely concerned in this light that we should all develop yeah. strategies now in order to deal with that yeah. circumstance. Yeah. Well, a lot of people feel that way. Um, I don't. I mean, I'll go down. I don't. <laughs> I mean, I don't, you know, if that happened, I'm not prepared for that. And if it happens, I'll get swept away by mm. it. 
Uh, and I'm okay with that. Like I say, I'm old. <laughs> so I've already had a good time. I was a hippie. What the fuck do I care? <laughs> well, the interesting point is his secondary question, which he said in a somewhat cryptic fashion, but I will interpret to go through the discussion that we've had associated with firearms and my interest yeah. in at least learning how to manufacture firearms related to the idea about what if what if we don't want to use firearms in our protection yeah. but it was so it was somewhat yeah. deeper than that because i think there is a pervasive and um, historically whatever this means what might have been called the left has had a view that firearms need to be you know are, need to be eradicated similar to the drug you know, the just say no yeah. crazed folks seem to think that. <sighs> well, it would be nice if be there was a world in which firearms were just uh, for sports. Yes. It would be wonderful. Yeah, obviously, you know, it's, it's people's use of firearms that, uh, yeah. But I would seem to me that in a sort of reasonable world, nobody would have firearms. Well, that's an interesting point because I guess my view is just as we are not in a reasonable world currently. Yeah. I view a knowledge about these things, an intimate knowledge, similar to a number of folks in the psychedelic community view an intimate knowledge associated with psychedelic chemistry. And although I come from a very anti-firearms uh, environment, so both psychologically and, you know, in terms of just a vast quantity of other aspects, I think there's something very productive about having an intellectual understanding of a phenomena, which enables you to not necessarily fear it, but at least get some, you know, additional information from the circumstances. So if you're ever confronted with yeah. these circumstances, you have a better understanding of what to do. Well, anything, yeah, knowledge is, is knowledge, you know. Yes. Like I say, but in a, in a reasonable world, you wouldn't need to apply certain kinds of knowledge, <laughs> you know. But, yeah, it's just not an issue that I'm really big about. I've just decided, at least now, I'm not... I, I'm not saying it's impossible that I might arm myself at some time. I mean, I have considered buying a gun. Mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, like I say, the idea of of uh, shooting it out with a bunch of language monkeys doesn't strike me as the, the kind of path I want to follow, you know. The so, things, the things yeah. that I'm finding through firearms culture in this country is it's very much a hobbyist community. I mean, I see parallels between model rails yeah, and yeah. firearms in terms of the marketing yeah. and the, the sales yeah. of that these things. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And a lot of these things are overpriced and underfunctioning and are associated with, I don't know, fashion trends for want of a better term. <laughs> and I think <laughs> what's, interesting, what's interesting through going, being part of this process, the exploration is showing me that... Uh, I can actually carve my own way through this and get the information that I need, but I don't need to leave any, you know, <laughs> I don't need to engage too much emotion in the process. It's just yeah. interesting in terms of an intellectual pursuit. Yeah. But I think to Chris's original point, we actually have a greater degree of control than one would like to associate with all these circumstances. I mean, your general narrative associated with awareness that the way that you avoid these circumstances is being relatively aware of your situation is an interesting one. Um, and I think it's certainly something that I embody as well. Oh, I see a lot of people who get themselves into all sorts of really shitty positions with things happening to them. And then when you look at what they actually do, you want, well, what do you expect? Yes. You know, you hang around with those people and you, you're surprised, <laughs> you know, at what happens. 
Yes, I found through YouTube a fellow, I guess he's a independent radio personality in Atlanta, called uh, Tommy Sotomayor. He's an African-American commentator who has a very, very negative light of a majority of the African-American, like, popular culture community. Mm-hmm. He basically says that, uh, you know, African-Americans are their own worst enemies, basically. Yeah. Associated well, with but that's true of just about everybody. I know. This is what's fascinating <laughs> yeah, to that's, me. That's no big deal. What's fascinating to me is his analysis, although some of it I disagree with, but yeah. he's very good at taking a magnifying glass down to, well, if you accept this, this, and this, yeah. then this, this, and this tends this to follow. Yeah, don't surprise yourself. Yes. And, you know, there are consequences associated with certain yeah. actions, and this is, and it's interesting because it's, um, it's an empowerment through analysis mm-hmm. method, which I really like. I mean, I like using that well, method myself. Well, in a myself. sense, again, it's getting out of the story. Certainly. I mean, is one way of looking at it. Is, I mean, yeah. people are stuck in one analysis, and, and what he's doing is challenging that analysis well, and offering a different one. Yes. What's acceptable should be considered unacceptable in order to move from the circumstances, which I think is a very interesting analytical tool. Now, as I've said, I don't agree with all his methods, and I think some of his methods are uh, just repetition learning, which I think is you know positive in breaking cycles for a certain group of people. Well, for some people, that's yeah. that's that's the beginning. That yeah. that yeah, it's a multi level approach. That's yeah. that's for the beginners. <laughs> but yes, it is very curious. I think I've I've fundamentally broken YouTube's algorithms now. I think they don't have a clue who I am at all, because I'm now getting, like... (laughs) You're getting shit all over them. Yeah. No more tampon ads, right? No, no, but strange, (laughs) strange transgender, this is your life kind of things, which I have to... (laughs) Marty Fisher is responsible for that, because our listener Marty Fisher pointed me towards some transgender YouTube celebrity who'd committed suicide. (laughs) And watching two of her videos... Oh, that did it. (laughs) ...triggered the transgender wave that I am now seeing. Oh, yeah, it's actually... I think they're that quick. I guess I'm pretty boring because I get mostly Alan Watts, Ram Dass, spiritual shit, <laughs> some science stuff. Yeah. It's pretty good, actually. They've got me down pretty good. You've, you've reinforced a lot of these aspects, though, in terms of your viewing habits, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. I watch the stuff that, that, that I'm interested in. Yes. Whereas I'm just all over the place. I mean, I'm constantly kind of grazing on the broader YouTube. Uh, uh, I see. I never do that. I only go there uh, if somebody gives me a link. Yes. You know, and then I'll go look. I mean, I. I mean, maybe two times a year, I might just go there and just sort of. I may get an idea and type in a word and see what's out there, but the, yeah. that's rare. That's all I seem to do, aside from when I watch follow-up videos from those original uh, searches. Ah, uh, yeah. Thinking about Rupert Sheldrake's um, morphogenesis, mm-hmm. I'm thinking if I wanted to believe in something, I'd real I really would like to believe that that's true, mm. <laughs> you know, because since I've devoted myself to this bizarre thing of debugging English and finding a linguistic passage to Nirvana. Um, it's really nice to know that even if I die and and don't ever achieve anything in particular, that the work wasn't in vain. You know, that it, that just doing it, just thinking the thoughts, reading the material, going through it, writing down the notes, doing what I do, um, that that, in fact, seems, you know, affects the whole world of, of thought. And I've read a little bit of Sheldrake. I, I'm not absolutely convinced, but it's a, I'm not, 
disconvinced either that that there might be something to it. I'm just curious what your your thoughts are on the idea of morphogenetic fields. Well, it's interesting that you mention that because this was actually going to be a topic that I wanted to discuss this evening <laughs> in a roundabout way. Yeah. Okay. So last week I tried to talk about a realization that I'd come to that I was halfway through my life. And you completely derailed the conversation with the notion that we'll all live 10,000 years. Yeah. And I had nothing to talk about associated with that. Yeah, but, halfway through your life. Shit, you're just getting started. Yeah. Okay, go on. Yeah. So I am relatively... How old are you? I'm 37. Okay. Yeah. So I'm relatively solidly of the view that given certain statistics... I am roughly halfway through yeah, my life. Yeah, fair guess, yeah. And with this in mind... Jesus, where does that put me? <laughs> Whoa! <laughs> okay, go with on. With that in mind, I've thought <laughs> quite critically associated with, firstly, how after my early 20s, where I reached my life's goals, I kind of waved around a bit, although I maintained things like Noble Ape and my writing through that period, but that I need to almost like reaffirm focus on getting out things which haven't yet surfaced, in my view, to their full potential, like my early writing, but also working on Noble Ape with a slightly more focused view. I'm really very pleased both with what we've been able to do here and also, um, you know, the model rail phenomena, even though that's kind of a bit of a detour of my general workings. But the thing that has struck me through this is... In contrast, and we will get to morphogenetic fields in a minute here. <laughs> okay. In contrast, what has gone on with the kind of broader artificial life community? Now, previously, I talked in almost satirical terms associated with the International Society of Artificial Life's endeavour to find Chris Langton, the founder of the field, who has done everything in his life to try not to be found ever again associated with the field of artificial life. Over the past week, the board of the International Society <coughs> of Artificial Life has been floating the idea of the Artificial Life Hall of Fame. This is their words. <laughs> well, that's cool. Yeah. Well, it, it would sound cool until you realise that the Artificial Life Hall of Fame was, in fact, a means of institutionalising the failings of the discipline. <laughs> People who you'd never oh, heard of previously, who had never actually done anything meaningful in terms of getting the ideas out to the broadest possible community, but had maintained their own little, you know, their own little quorums of, you know, small yeah. groups of folk. And the thing that is... Well, that's all valid. That's acceptable. But a Hall of Fame, I don't know. Maybe it's just a Hall of Participants, maybe. Well, see, <laughs> I mean, my, my interest is in the communication. So if the Hall of Fame was like 10 folk whose papers were then published in a popular book, I mean, that, that was one of the things that got me into artificial life was Margaret A. Bowden's philosophy of artificial life, which I think is probably one of the best treaties of artificial life, particularly for the philosophically inclined, philosophically inclined. So... But that's not what they're talking about here. So returning yeah. to Sheldrake, mm -hmm. the thing that interests me about artificial life historically through what I've done through Biota, I should point out when I was looking at the stats from uh, Stone Ape, I was also looking for the stats of Biota. Biota's uh, 8,000 and change unique IPs. Oh. So there are people out there that are interested in this artificial life stuff, yeah. which is not in the academic community, or they are in the academic community. Well, some of them are, yeah. Yes. But, but yeah, that's just one, out, one component, yeah. yeah. But I think there's a growing interest in doing things like creating simulations of morphogenesis, creating simulations. So, for example, I talked to a fellow uh, who basically was in and out of a lunatic asylum, uh, and he appeared on the Biota podcast periodically. 
He was constant stream of consciousness, actually. I should probably post some of his audio to the Stone Ape feed because I think the Stone Ape listeners yeah. would really be on his wavelength for a lot of stuff. But yeah. he talks about simulating Sheldrake. And what he did was uh-huh. he created a simulation, a regular simulation with autonomous agents that kind of wandered over an environment. And then he gave them a kind of morphogenetic field space which enabled them to, as, you know, Sheldrake postulates, yeah. um, c- communicate on a different level or at least... How, how much do you about know it? about the the, the, ex- the the evidence that he gives, you know, about experiments run in different places at different times and that later animals uh, learn these mazes quicker? Uh, all that sounds really nice, but I'm wondering... I mean, I haven't followed up on any of that stuff. Yes. Uh, you know, do you have any reason so to, I, to I, believe I, that's I, not greatly exaggerated? I have or? a number of I have well as as you talk about punctuated equilibrium. Yeah. You can use punctuated equilibrium at least in his human examples mm-hmm. to describe some of the phenomena. Just so the fact that the times are revolutionary in that sense. Well, if you look at Newton and Leibniz and you look at all these kind of discovery, co-discovery, a lot of stuff in computation has been done roughly the same time. Yeah, the time is ripe and this stuff happens. Exactly. When that is can be easily interpreted associated with focused minds on particular problems. Yeah, but he's talking about rats running mazes under certain circumstances. Well, his description also about the, the permeation and the way in which various plants have changed. But you see, this is again, this is, this goes back to Gaia perfectly, Heron. We are stupid because we yeah. do not realize the full system nature of the planet. Yeah, right. Yeah, we don't see the planet as a, as a, a unity in itself. We don't its own see dynamics. the nature that we are all hit by the same solar radiation. We yeah. don't see yeah. all these aspects. In yeah. fact, the interesting thing is Lorraine posted a video through the week of two monkeys. Oh, yeah, famous. Yeah, that's a yeah, great one. I, one being yeah. Yeah, fed yeah. grapes and the other one being yeah. fed um, cucumbers. cucumbers and yeah. throwing. <laughs> the thing that interests me about that is this is, this is exactly – the biologist's foible is that if you change one parameter, you are able to explain a particular phenomena. So when I went to the Artificial Life Conference and I met with biologists, I said, here's the phenomenon with no belief. And they said, oh, it's way too complex. I don't think we can even take the weather simulation. Oh, this, there's too much complexity. We can't study biology in this kind of environment. And the nature... That's is- too complex for them? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. Now, if we took out the if we took out the weather and we uh, simplified the landscapes and we had our swim bots going through, that's still a little bit complicated. These water currents I don't know if yeah. we can deal with that. Yeah. And I guess this is the nature of traditional biology. I view Sheldrake not be, not through any mysticism. I don't see the morphogenetic fields as being a mystically no, described I phenomena. Hmm. I see them being a part of the whole. And yeah, unless right, you understand yeah. the biology as a whole, yeah. which humans yeah. have, biologists in particular, have been notoriously poor in doing, then you don't get an... You see, the problem is that Sheldrake himself portrays this degree <coughs> of mysticism rather than explicitly talking about the nature of kind of interlinking systems. Yeah. And I guess that's that's my critique, but I'm very sympathetic to Sheldrake's ideas in a non-mystical setting. Yeah. I think it's relative a number of the phenomena he describes conceptually, particularly through simulation are easy to describe. Yeah. I don't see any point in mysticism at at any level. You know, I mean from what I've seen it's mostly just a bunch of bullshit, you know. 
it's nice. Maybe people like to think that way, but mm. I, I don't think we need. I'm not even sure what mysticism even means, except that you don't have, you can't talk specifically about it. Well, <laughs> it's know? interesting actually because I guess my concern, particularly with the kind of you know broad fundamentalist atheist narrative that seems to be peppering through the discussion of science, is it fails to acknowledge how little we actually know. But more here, importantly, here. more importantly, how the <clears throat> ways in which we establish knowledge, i the principles that get us through biology, chemistry, physics, you know, mathematics to a certain extent, actually construct the problems or produce the problems for us. Yeah. You know, in terms of tools of insight, you can look at the various methods that are used in these disciplines and indicate where there are holes that probably should be filled. But that in and of itself, I think, is... You know, I, I, we've fallen into a number of Lorraine's subtopics through this discussion. But, yeah, yeah I'm sympathetic to Sheldrake not as... Uh, but well, as it just feels life. good for me. I mean, the idea that all this work I've... I mean, because I'm looking at where I am right now. I've taken a year off, mm-hmm. and it's real clear to me I, t- I need to take another year. I mean, what I, I'm not sure what the hell I'm even doing, mm. <laughs> you know? Uh I mean, it's it's much clearer than it's ever been, but it's certainly not clear enough for me to embark on any particular line of action. Mm. And um, and I, I there's no I I have no idea whether I'll ever accomplish what I want to accomplish. Mm. But the idea that continuing to work on it has an impact is worth doing, even if I die and all my journals are burnt up and uh, and just, you know, I've affected the people I've affected, obviously, so I've had some impact. But um, thinking that, you know, somehow it all contributes, you know, yeah. is is very comforting feeling, mm. <laughs> you know. But I'm not, again, I, don't, I certainly don't believe it, but it doesn't seem totally unreasonable to make that assumption. The interesting phenomena associated with the unique IP addresses as a means of scoping the folks who are even listening to Stone Ape, assume half is the case. Assume a fifth is the case. Yeah, whatever. 10% even. A, a yeah. thousand people yeah. who That's are all- listening to our words currently, reflecting on it, maybe yeah. motivating some aspects in their lives. Maybe they just like listening in to laugh. But nonetheless, I think it has an impact. Yes, that it's there. Yes, yes clearly. No, I, I'm 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 talking about something beyond that, though. Although, yeah, I am, but I don't see it as mystical. I mean, I, I acknowledge that. I know I've had an impact in the world. It, you know, small as it may be, there are a lot of individual humans who have had their brains changed by listening to me somehow or other. Mm. You know, I don't know how many, but. In any case, I'm talking. Well, I'm talking about what, yeah, what uh, what Sheldrake talks about—a morphogenetic field that somehow just doing the thinking itself is part of. Yeah, and, and when you see it in terms of Gaia, then it seems even more obvious that it's you know it, it's going to impact everything. Mm. So anyway, it's just anyway. That just—I don't know why that came up this week. Well, I guess is because I was sitting here looking forward to another year, not knowing really what I'm going to be doing, having no plans to take any particular action or anything, just trying to clarify what it is I want to do. And uh, and thinking, you know, I may never do it. I may just be deluded. I may just, you know, spend the next 20 years, if I'm lucky enough to live that long, 
continuing to read and ponder and wonder what the hell I'm going to do, and then I'll die. <laughs> you know, yeah. and it would be nice to think that, like I say, that that even though I may never achieve, you know, or, or recognize that I've that I've achieved what I set out to do, um, that it still has some import. You know, I, I just like that idea. Well, you could be yeah, inspiring. You, like you could idea. be inspiring people currently in their early twenties to take a different path. Absolutely, to explore yeah. something interesting, yeah. which in and of itself motivates. Yeah. Well, that's all part of the, the, the normal, the sort of normal stuff. Like I say, I know I've influenced a lot of people. Well, some people. Uh, and, uh, and I'm grateful for that. I mean, every once in a while I get an email from somebody, you know, and, uh, it's really nice <laughs> when they say thanks. You know, you said something and it changed the way I think about things. That's great. So following along this line, almost lockstep, with our current discussion, Lorraine asserts the current institutions of public education and academia are completely antithetical to the development of intellectually curious, she uses the D word, democratically operating and otherwise functioning earthlings. We desperately need alternatives spanning squish and the matrix. Please discuss my reifying truth claims. Huh? I missed that last Please, please discuss what? My reifying truth claims, which I think is a – anyway, moving on from that. That relates to what she just said earlier? Yes. Okay, I'm not sure I get that. Let's eliminate the please discuss my reifying. Let's just discuss. Okay, just talk about, yeah, the yes. education and what's needed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, clearly the – oh, clearly. Listen to me. God, I'm so full of shit. Uh. <laughs> um. Yeah, I think it would be great if all the schools just closed down. You know, they just said, ah, we don't have enough money. We're, we're going to close them all. Then everybody would know their kids aren't being educated instead of going around with the illusion that their children are being educated now. Yeah, I asserted to two of my coworkers this week that schools were just to familiarize yourself with the prison system. Yeah, basically, and yeah, it's an indoctrination. Yeah, yeah. Schools was not to educate. And if they thought that their children would be, as you say, if you think children are being educated in schools, then <laughs> you must have, have been educated in the school. We have a long way to go. I mean, the, the assertion that education yeah. occurs within yeah. institutions. Well, that's why I'm so excited about uh, tablet computers. You know, the fact that babies now have yeah. their own iPads. You know, I don't think we'll, I think if the, Five years from now, even, yeah, five, certainly ten years from now, if the education system collapsed, I don't think it would make much difference. And, and actually, I think it would probably be better. The notion that there are more producers of content, I think, is a very positive thing. Yeah. Because I'll through just... that, we will, well, firstly, we will improve our broader understanding. I mean, phenomena like YouTube do that pretty well currently. But I think that is, is only going to get more extreme. We are yeah. only in, at the start of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm, yes, it's great. Yeah. It could, it mean, it could be really very exciting in terms of a variety of different forms of media. All sorts of possibilities for yeah. educating children emerge now. Yes. There, there's all, I mean, and some of it entails them meeting physically in a room with a teacher or a group of facilitators or something or whatever. That's certainly still a valid part of education. But uh, so much of it can be done on an iPad. <laughs> 
and at home or with a group of friends or any other, oh God, just all sorts of ways, you know? Yes, it's an interesting, I mean, the, the notion of the historical forms that we've had, the historical forms of media, the phenomena of the film or the documentary or the movie or yeah. all these kind of things, I think, is being chiseled away progressively by these devices that have cameras and yeah. uh, enable people to communicate almost <clears throat> instantaneously. Well, I'm t- I am just still I, – I remember when the iPad first came out, I was not impressed. I didn't get one until the Retina display showed mm-hmm. up. And um, – and within within hours of getting it and playing with it, I was absolutely captivated by it. Mm. And um, I really and I, I, of course, I can't get rid of my real computer. That's essential. But uh, I, I probably spend more time on my iPad than I do on my computer now. Work. Yeah. I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but work through the week gave me a computer with a Retina display. And yeah. I don't think I'm ever going to use another kind of computer uh, No, again. no, you, you can't. No. It really is it just astonishing. It, yeah. What did, I mean, did you get? A uh, 15-inch MacBook Pro with oh, Retina. Yeah. Oh, but the, I, thing, I, the thing about it is that editing code, which is the, probably the driest form of computer use, yeah. is now luscious. Oh, yeah. It now oh, has yeah. a text Yeah, that it. screen is, yeah. like I say, I can't stand reading paper anymore. So I, I brought mean, it home in the evening yeah. in order to work on Mobile Ape and my productivity on yeah. Mobile Ape just through this screen. Yeah. And honestly, I was skeptical up until the actual interaction, but yeah. now I am a yeah. true yeah. believer. Yeah, yeah. once you get it, it, yeah, once you see it, yeah. you never go. Well, like I say, the idea of re- I, I just just cringe every time I have to buy a book off of Amazon, you know, a piece of paper with toxic chemicals smashed on it, you know, it just looks awful compared to what I get on the iPad. You know, I mean, the text, the crispness, the clearness of the, of the text is so much better. Plus all the, the other facets of of live links and, (laughs) you know, dictionaries and shit, you know, God, it's just, oh, yeah, I I don't know what that's like on a computer. I, you know, because I got rid of my laptop. I only have an iMac now. Mm. Although someday I imagine I'm going to end up with a Retina display. Yeah, I've always been more laptop centric. I mean, my means of interacting, particularly because of the programming, but also just the way I operate, is very centered around the laptop. The first computer I ever purchased when I was what nineteen was a yeah. laptop. I mean, my family yeah. had a. a what was it even called? What was the Mac Classic? The original Mac Classic. Oh, the one twenty eight. No, no, it was the Mac Classic, which was like one meg, but it was okay. The Mac Plus, you mean? No, no, the, they okay. they released what they called the Mac Classic. Okay, was that was, still the, the original form though? It was the original what? form, yes. Okay, all right. Yeah, and anyway, but the the first computers I used were regularly were um, that I owned and could move around were thirteen inch. Uh, what became, I guess, the MacBook Pro. Yeah. Um, and I had various Windows machines and what have you through that period of time too. But my way of interacting with a computer is primarily through a laptop because I type quickly. Yeah. So really typing slowly through the iPad just isn't the same thing. And most yeah. of my work is text-based. Yeah. So, you know, that's just the form that it takes. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, Yeah, see, typing is a small part. Yeah. And when I type, I'm typing ideas that are in my head, and those come to me slowly. It's not hard for me to keep up with that. (laughs) And actually, I'm getting to be quite not a bad typist at all on the iPad. Uh, 
you know? I mean, I can, not as good as I can on a real keyboard, but, you know, I don't really need that. So, yeah. It's yes. Not, yeah. So, through the week, I posted on the Stone Ape Facebook page the first conversation that you and I ever had. Uh, yeah, I, uh, I listened to part of that. Which was through <laughs> a Biota podcast recording. Yeah, on TalkShoe, right? Yeah, on TalkShoe. Yeah. And yeah. Um, Lorraine must have actually gone through the Biota catalog this week, or at least the podcasts around it. Because she asks, um, associated with Biota Podcast 56, which was an interview that I did with Tom Ray. I need to take some steps back here and describe who Tom <coughs> Ray is. Tom Ray is both, uh, he's, he's in this class of people that are both part of the artificial life community and also part of the psychedelic community. Tom Ray was a biologist, very similar to McKenna, uh, who went into the jungles of Peru and basically lost a few years of his life there, <laughs> emerged from the jungles of Peru, and then wrote a program called Tierra, which created a programming soup of biological evolution, which he wrote, I guess, in the early late 80s, early 90s. He has since fallen out, perhaps for reasons that I've already discussed this evening, with the artificial life crowd, and now thinks of himself more as, I don't know what one would call it, actually, like neuropsychology, perhaps? But the interesting thing is he and I wrote together in a book uh, about maybe two years ago, and his writing was almost unintelligible. In fact, I was one of the critical readers of his work. And I actually was in the, you know, don't publish camp associated with a large part of it. He started talking about a series of things associated with neurochemistry, and then he just started quoting the doors. And then he just started <laughs> quoting, like, it was really very disjointed and actually I thought it could be cut in half or even thirds quite comfortably. And really the third, the first third was what I thought was useful for publication. He was finally published in the work. I'm not, I've never actually gone back, aside from acknowledging that he got into the book and read his section to remind myself of whether it contained the doors still, even after my um, critical comments. Anyway, so he's a he's an interesting character in, in both the kind of artificial life and the psychedelic community. And um, anyway... Lorraine writes, Tom Ray insists the effective domain is the core of our being. What are the implications for artificial life? Tom's apes are programmed for to fear and desire. They are emotional beings. What is an appropriate ethical relationship to artificial life that feels? How did the gossip come about and what do you think it means? Is the socialization a direct result of the feelings? Heron, do you think higher emotional... Uh, competence emerges organically as we are reprogramming our language machines. I think more of that was addressed to you. I know, but why don't we finish with yours? <laughs> Do you think higher emotional competence emerges organically as we reprogram our language machines? Yes, I do. I hope. Let's just say I, I would, I'm operating on that assumption and I have no way of knowing whether it's really true or not. But it doesn't seem unreasonable anyway to assume that if people uh, were not identified with the story in their head and were able to stand back from it and reevaluate it, that would in fact change their emotional responses to everything. Yes, I think it, I think it will. And just how, I'm not sure. So to answer the first part that Lorraine asks, it was very interesting to actually have the chance to talk to Tom Ray uh, because he was certainly someone who I thought should 
Well, certainly the things that had gotten him out of the artificial life community, I think ultimately would motivate me to leave the artificial life community if I cared about them sufficiently. So my aim in reaching out to Tom in that interview was to have an opportunity to jam with him in some, you know, low level sense, particularly associated with his, uh, you know, new simulated neurochemical approach. The interesting thing about Noble Ape is that it doesn't, it originally existed associated with this kind of fear and desire, you know, interacting together and working into the apes' movements and these kind of things. But it's become a much higher order simulation through the work of Bob Bottram primarily. The thing that I'm tinkering with currently is actually how to simplify that to a greater extent. A lot of Bob Mottram's code was very much associated, I guess, with this kind of robotic exploration. And I think from that, I'm finding generalizations, general simplifications, which make the simulation, firstly, a lot more readable, which is always an important point if you're bringing in people from the open source community and, you know, folk, biologist folk who are interested in tinkering with computers, that you have something that's readable. But also something that is easier for contemporary computing to uh, to optimise and run with, which I think is a longer project. The ethical question I've thrown out to a number of folk, we now actually have Andy, the fellow who ran Noble Ape for, you know, tens of thousands of simulated years, listening to Stone Ape and on the Stone Ape Facebook group, so it's wonderful to have Andy there. I think of Noble Ape uh, more as, I don't know, I'm, I'm sufficiently removed from it as as users see it. It's an interesting relationship mm. that the users have with the simulation. You're God. Me. I'm not. The users are the users are God. I'm the meta I You're don't the God to, God. No, yeah, I don't even know how to describe my relationship. My relationship is to improve the simulation progressively to the point where more and more folk will be interested in it. And making it philosophically sticky brings in a number of users. Optimizing it in particular ways brings in a small number of users. But, you know, the big carrot that is still out there is associated with visualization. It's associated with making people who are more visually receptive interested in the simulation. That's what I need. Yes. (laughs) I need to watch them. Yes. (laughs) So the notion of gossip actually is interesting. Lorraine asks, how does gossip come about? Uh, and what do I think it means? Well, it's, I think of language and genetics and a lot of these things in terms, almost, I guess, in terms of information theory. I mean, to quote my, you know, sometimes perceived nemesis Chris Adami, if you start looking at these things in terms of information theory, you have a better understanding of what's going on here. The nature of gossip and communication is really critical because it's a kind of sexification of communication for a start, but also, If you think of ideas or words or things that exist almost like organisms in and of themselves, I mean, the stone ape is a phenomenon in that regard. The nature that you get these things and they propagate almost like a virus through a system is an important phenomenon. Language is like that. What will assist language to propagate is, uh, you know, gossip. It makes it interesting. And it works very well in the noble ape simulation because it conveys a variety of bits of information that historical procedural language-based simulations didn't do. They just kind of worked away at the code. And it was this notion of genetic algorithms and genetic programming. Genetic algorithms are like a linear 
set of values, like genes, basically, that exist. Genetic programming enables you to go in a variety of different directions. It's like another dimension, basically, on uh, genetic algorithms. And the thing that interests me through the ideas of gossip here, for example, is that it just gives you an additional texture to kind of convey the information as it as it moves through. So I think I've, I've probably overloaded the, uh, you know, the show-based dose of Nobelite-related talk in Lorraine's well, You know, that's, that's not unrelated to the idea of morphogenetic fields. Not at all, yeah. Yeah, yeah. gossip. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yeah, even when the subject... You know, again, the structure of the thought as opposed to the content of the thought, both are effective. Certainly. So it's possible that even though the conversation might be about the content might be trivial, there may be something about the structure of the talk that's profound, unknown to the participants. Certainly. But that that structure of talk is being propagated. I'm hoping that, you know, that sounds sort of reasonable, doesn't it? Certainly. Hmm. Okay. I'm going to take a Marie Camacho question and rephrase it to make it slightly more interesting for the general discussion. I'll ask Marie's original question, then I'll rephrase it. Good. I think that's fair. How is cultural ideology linked to its architecture? And I will rephrase it. Hmm. Okay. Wait a minute. I want to just think about that. How is, how is what? Cultural ideology linked to its architecture. Okay. Of course, that's... See, that that's the thing where you really need to sit down with somebody and get the question. I mean, because that question really can't be asked in that few words. <laughs> well, let me let me let me rephrase it. Okay. So given the sacred Stone Age documents, including the journals of Heron, are taken <laughs> on and uh embody the new civilization soon to come after our both both of our untimely demises. <laughs> What will the buildings look like? You've already answered this question. There's already I've, documents I've given in the that some thought. Yeah, sure. Yes. I'm amazed that that's how you interpret her question. Read her question again. How is cultural ideology linked to its architecture? Oh, okay. I was thinking the architecture of thought itself, like grammar. <laughs> so I, I was thinking totally different. No. Ah, but well, yeah, I've already pretty much come up with solutions that make sense to me on that. Well, I mean, <laughs> that doesn't really well, answer the even... question that I phrased. Let me, let, me, let me explore this. The oh, thing that interests me about building, particularly in, I mean, what you see in California and Nevada versus my experiences in Australia versus what I hear about in New England, is that... I've always been interested, and maybe this is a model rail radio thing, but I've always been interested in basements and environments that have cultivated basements. Californian architecture, and this I'm talking about junk architecture, um, you know, apartments, what have you, is so constructed based on the fear of earthquakes that it actually changes... Well, firstly, it gives everything a utility which I link almost to the utility that I saw in, in East Berlin. I mean, East Berlin is basically cookie-cutter kind of cement uh, square edges, very along the lines that you would, you know, establish kind of communist 
you know, visions of these kind of things. And this is obviously the link of architecture and ideology, and mm. obviously yeah. through Germany, Austria, what have you. But given the option of cultivating an architecture based on an independent ideology, I've experienced this actually. I mean, through the writing, the what is now referred to as the jungle through the field of chaos writing, people built structures without any planning, without any... And you see this also, if you're familiar, are you familiar with the small house movement, Heron? Yeah, vaguely. I mean, I'm, I'm not... But I am aware of it, yes. Yeah, I mean, the small house movement is probably the closest thing in the US <laughs> that you can get to this kind of architecture in terms well, that's of... For, yeah, yeah. In terms that's of uti- not a US phenomenon much. That's a world phenomenon. Some- well, the California yeah, small... Sorry. It's interesting, actually, because I bought three books on small houses recently. I've been a long-time subscriber to small houses YouTube channels and gone various <laughs> building ideas through <laughs> That's them. such a great idea. God, what a great world, man, with YouTube especially, <laughs> for all the small house people. Yeah. I mean, you there, get- there must be a lot of them all over the planet, oh, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But what you see in California, particularly associated with wooden structures, and you get this in Colorado and New York State and all these kind of things. But yeah, it is an interesting phenomenon that uh, architecture is changing based on ideology. Yeah. Some of these small houses look phenomenally cozy, actually. They look really livable. I live quite nicely in 300 square feet. Yeah. You know, that's... uh... Really, I mean, it'd be nice to have more. I, I could certainly use it, but I don't feel constrained. I mean, most times you're in a room. I mean, most people are in a room yeah. most of the time. Yeah. And if they're in their bedroom, well, again, a, a 15 by 20 foot room is a pretty good size room. Yeah. So, you know, yeah. so, so uh, <laughs> it doesn't bother me at all, but it would be nice to have more. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I've certainly, when I've been in smaller spaces as I am currently, I certainly use bookshelves. I mean, the area, I've shown this in video, actually, the area where I sleep has bookshelves surrounding me. My my spiritual advisor frequently notes in the event of an earthquake, I will be buried. you dead, yeah. 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 But I, you know, I <laughs> I must have, when I was about 15 or 16, read a, accounts, and these were both written in pictorial accounts of Muscovites, people that lived in Moscow. And they had a similar, you know, they had a similar space, but they had, you know, three or four or five. Oh, people. I know. Well, look, talk to some Chinese. Yeah, Hong Kong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Man. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it's amazing uh, what what people can thrive, tolerate and thrive on in some ways. Mm. Uh, is anyone, it'd be interesting if you could do cross-cultural studies and, you know, somehow weed that out and find out what it what it does to people to be to be that crammed together instead of having some space to spread out and privacy. Well, I mean, thanks to air travel, people actually migrate to different places. It's not that everyone is flooding to the U.S. to have large track, you know, suburban houses. No, it's going the other way, too. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. In starting Marie's question, I think what's interesting me currently is the... Read me that question again, because I was... In the beginning, I was taking it in a totally different... I wasn't thinking of physical architecture. Read the question again. I'd really appreciate that. How is cultural ideology linked to its architecture? Okay, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah, that's a good question. Are are you done with your analysis, or... I have a few more thoughts, but if you want to throw some out there... Well, I'm... You know, because I have spent a lot of time thinking about this, but... I hadn't been thinking about the fact that I was thinking about it. (laughs) 
So bringing up this question, all of a sudden I'm reviewing all the drawings I did and, and the thoughts I've had and this whole idea of the political idea of city-states, of, of uh, you know, the end of countries but the beginning of the era of city-states. And that the architecture, what's the architecture in, in this place going to look like if it's maximally efficient so that we don't have to work? <laughs> hmm. And um, so, yeah, I mean, I've, I've certainly got lots of ideas. I'm, I'm probably this isn't the place to go into the details of those things, but I don't think it's going to be hit and miss. I think if we want to live, like I say, well, again, it's your. it depends on your idea of paradise. My idea of paradise involves me not having – of me being free – 11 months a year to do any goddamn thing I want with no constraints, mm. okay? Uh, in order to do something like that, like I say, it's going to require, I suspect, uh, some degree of organization. <laughs> and and the architecture is going to reflect that. It's going to be efficient. This means Paolo Soleri had this great analogy about an animal that is so poorly designed that Basically, all it can do is somehow get enough sustenance to support itself so that it can go on getting enough sustenance to support itself as opposed to an organism that's got so much excess energy that it can play volleyball. Yes. And uh, I want to play volleyball. <laughs> and that means we're going to have to get our shit together. At least that seems reasonable to me. We're going to have to to get unified spiritually intellectually on on enough levels so that we can work together and and create a structure that frees us most of the time except for the time when we're working <laughs> yes the interesting phenomenon that i find through the small house movement is that it i guess my dream aspect of that is to find a piece of land within good walking distance from a railway station somewhere in the world and from that construct mm. a small house that still mysteriously has an internet connection yes of course that's that, absolutely necessary that yeah. enables people to come and visit probably solar will do it uh, I, yes I, without question I, you know, yeah I and also the ability to have guests periodically but not to be overwhelmed by guests but just to continue to function as I have, without yeah. the you know the needs of. Do you need to own it, or could what if there were just uh, uh, places you could just go inhabit for as well, long as you, you wanted? Know, look, people have offered that, but they've never really been meaningful offerings. I do. Wonder, no, I'm not talking about people offering. I'm just saying how much of that, how important well, is the my, of ownership as opposed to just the ability to do all of those things. Unfortunately, my answer is informed by my experience. In this okay, all right, all right, but. Imagine that we didn't have those constraints. Imagine you lived on a planet of enlightened people. I could foresee, I mean, there has been potential through my life. I thought about this when I was with Wozniak to exist as like a technical muse. In fact, Wozniak offered me one of his, you know, mansions to live in for a period of time. Uh, it was a very curious period in my life. I think the... Not necessarily the strength, but the peace of mind that I have through ownership, and that is relatively artificial. But still, the peace of mind that I have through ownership is different than existing. Oh, yeah, yeah but peace of mind is all tied up with culture and, and uh, threats in this culture and the possibility uh, of being evicted and yes, all sorts of legal you know, bullshit. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, okay, yeah. so if, if there was a way where I wasn't connected with another human psychology 
in living somewhere, then I mean, see, because the reason I'm asking this is because I don't I don't see that as being I don't think we can all live that way. That's not efficient. That's not going to work. Okay, but some of us, a small number of us, could live that way some of the time. And if we actually could figure out who and why wants to, then we could arrange for there to be exactly what you want in the most incredible places, anywhere you want. Uh, and that we could actually construct it. And, uh, and then when you're done with it, we'll just deconstruct it and bring it back. Or you know, someone else no, could move in. I mean, the or so, yeah, well, whatever. whatever. It doesn't make any difference. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying yeah. is that, you know, the, this, you know, it could be flown out. And, I mean, since it's small, you could just fly it out and plop it down. It could be a self-standing unit yeah. that, that, that does everything you need. You yes. know? Yeah, I mean, part of the small house movement is also the transportable house movement. Yeah. In large if you part, could just fly it out. That'd be great. Well, in large part because of building regulations, and yeah. you have a non-permanent structure, you can you can do yeah. a lot more with it. Get away with a lot of stuff. Yeah, look, I'd be sympathetic to that. I mean, certainly, the only problem is that you still on some if if it was possible to not have to deal with someone else's psychology through this environment. I mean, I think that would be the dream. Ultimately. Well, again, we're, again, remember, I told you that we're not dealing with language monkeys here. This is, I'm talking about the future when we've made the change. Yeah. Yes. You know, how it could be. Yeah, Getting I'm, there is problematic. I agree. Yeah, I'm talking about in the meantime. I'm talking yeah, in about, the mean, yeah, right. Well, and, and I have no quarrel with that. You're right. There are all sorts of obstacles yeah. uh, and problems. But again, I don't think that they preclude the possibility of actually getting there. It just means that's what we have to deal with. But again, while we're, we're changing the game by articulating the game. Yes. So, yeah. I, well, that's just my optimism, I guess. I, I, I really do think paradise is possible. Well, I think you can get close. Close enough. Close enough. I'll take close enough. Yeah. <laughs> That'll do. Yes. So today I was online reading Google News and I came across an account of a 15-year-old girl who had run away, disappeared, who then sent her family a letter a week afterwards, through the postal service, it took 13 days to actually arrive there. But no account was given of what was in the letter, although in order to post a letter, you need a series of things to occur. And I went back to a time when I was 15, and actually 17 as well. Through that period of time in my life, I frequently thought about and actually had the means to run away. I had places where I could go and live. I knew people who lived off the grid who were sympathetic to me, and I could have survived quite comfortably in these environments. And funnily enough, my spiritual advisor actually did run away when she was 15. And um, it is an interesting phenomena that the assertion that whenever a child leaves or whenever a teenager in these circumstances leave, it's always something where... And the police <laughs> came out and said out to the girl, you are better to come home, you would be better to live with your family. Well, wait a minute. Did did they know that, did they think she was abducted or that she just ran away? Was there any... I so mean, they didn't reveal How did they classify aspect. that? They didn't, they didn't describe any aspect of what was written in the letter because... No, I, no I'm not talking about that. I mean, up until that time, she was just a missing person. Whoever, right? I mean, nobody knew she ran away. She well, just disappeared. So how did the police 
you know, was this an open case of a missing person? It's an interesting question, actually. When I was, uh, how old was I? I would have been about 15. My friend did actually run away. He disappeared. He, um, he was gone for a period of about six months. And it was an interesting phenomenon because it breaks. I mean, uh, so nobody knew whether he'd been abducted by some molester. So here's here's yeah. the interesting thing yeah. that happened through that. We saw him on television briefly. His family had been he'd he'd prepped his family for the concept that he might run away, and his family by this point <laughs> was so exhausted by him that they really didn't care. They were kind of kind of glad that he was gone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> For for us, I mean, you know, from from my mother and I, we found this whole thing really very very strange. He did come back. He did turn up again after six months with a with a buddy with him, and it was clear that he'd survived quite comfortably living in squats and then living, yeah. you know, living well, you know, with yeah. with other folk and doing a variety of things. It was certainly a big adventure for him. Yeah. But it interested me this notion that I mean, a female child probably has additional kind of contextual baggage associated with disappearance. But the thing that struck me through the media accounts was there was no account of her home life. Yeah. You know. Well, but I, I mean, just generally speaking, if, if somebody just ends up missing, I would have, I had thought that they just assumed it was an abduction. Well, this is interesting because this is the notion of the child as being a valuable commodity that will be stolen away from parents. <laughs> well no, I'm just I'm just curious if that I mean what I mean there must be some sort of standard procedure for police departments. This is interesting here because again when I reflect on when I was 15 but more importantly when I was 17 and actively considered disappearing these were times where I was clearly not fully baked. I wasn't fully developed as an Oh, like you form. are now, huh? Well, no, 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 no. <laughs> But at the same point, the difficulties, the reasons that I wanted to leave were real reasons. They were not yeah. reasons that were trivial in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, and the assertion right. by contemporary society that obviously, oh, yes, these, these children are abducted, because no one would exist with an abusive home life, there would be no excuse why anyone would want to leave the wonderful environment yeah, that America created for yeah. them. Christian and America, exactly, no way. This whole narrative, <laughs> I found, and it struck me because I hadn't questioned it. I hadn't even thought about it deeply. Yeah. No, that's an interesting point. Neither did I. Until Maybe I reflected right. on this notion that we always they just assume, got fed up and left. <laughs> yeah, we always assume sexual predators, something sinister going yeah. on. Why yeah. can't it just be that they're just sick of it? They their just home woke life? up and said, Fuck yeah. you, man. I mean, maybe they have sexual predators in their homes. Yeah. You know? Or they might have just been being raised by a bunch of fucking exactly. Americans. Yeah. <laughs> you know? No, it really changed. Well, the question then is yes, th that's an interesting idea. Although it, of course, I don't know because I haven't really looked at it, but it seems that at least the ones I become aware of are abductions. Yes. So, um, so obviously there, but yeah, the question is how many runaways are there? That's an interesting. There's a stunning number. I think it's something like a quarter of a million a year. It's in like the US or what? In the US. A quarter million runaways between yes. the ages of what? I wonder. Uh, I don't know, but it's a substantial number, and yes, and we're the talking like under eighteen. Under eighteen, yes. Okay. Now, obviously, and most as, of as those young as what? I mean, in these statistics, I mean, are there twelve-year-olds? Yeah, I would imagine so. Yeah, but the interesting phenomena is that this isn't talked about. It's a bit like we talked about the kind of mass killing murder statistics. 
since I've started thinking about that, I've actually encountered through reading, through media, through what have you, a variety of mass killings that aren't in fact documented in the mass killing statistics. It almost makes me really suspicious associated with anything that's kind of formally presented to me through the media associated with these things. But associated with runaways, it's a very interesting phenomena that we are, as you say, programmed to assume all this kind of sinister yeah. motivation I associated love it, man. with it. Because that's, it's certainly been my assumption. I mean, you tell me someone disappeared and I think, well, they got uh, abducted. Yeah. You know? And <laughs> it really doesn't enter my mind. Well, maybe they just got fed up with their asshole parents and left. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because <laughs> what, what the narrative does is it, it disempowers the person who is escaping, it makes well, them a yeah. commodity that is being well, It's crazy. just another stupid unconscious assumption exactly. uh, that's held to be true without yeah. examining it, which is what I've been doing yeah. until now. So thank you, Tom, <laughs> for uh, awakening me to that. So I was talking about this this evening with my another child advisor. liberated <laughs> with my spiritual advisor associated with her experience running away. Yeah. She found some 19-year-old guy who probably wasn't the right person, as she acknowledges now. Yeah, of wasn't course. The right person got her to out of there, though. <laughs> got her out of there. Yeah. But her sister with her father actually found her and tracked her down. And I just thought, because there's a constant ongoing narrative. That says How old was she when, when she did this? 15. Okay, yeah. Same age as this other girl in the yeah. media. And I know for a fact, because I still spent time with my in-laws that there are very good reasons for her to run away. There were very good reasons for her oh, to yeah, run away. Yeah, yeah. I don't know how most yeah, most people who are parents should be, you know, yeah. put in jail for what they do. Yeah. Yeah, I agree completely. Yeah, it's amazing that there aren't more <laughs> kids who kill their parents or or at least leave. Yeah. yeah. Well, it shows you how effective they are at dumbing down their kids before they wake up. Well, the know. whole it's interesting because the whole media phenomena is associated with describing these creatures as inanimate, in, unintellectual objects that are yeah. just ripped out. Lipped, lifted off the street exactly. into the back of a van. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. I just downloaded a movie called 3096. Uh-huh. Are you familiar with that? No, I'm not. It was about this girl in Germany who was abducted at the age of eight or something and was held captive for almost ten years, a little over eight, eight and a half years. Yeah, it was it's a famous case in Europe. Anyway. Certainly. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm anyway, they, they've made a movie about it. Now, why am I telling you that? What does that have to do with it? Well, anything? that's just the media reaff- yeah. reaffirming that... Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is... Yeah. yeah. So... So for folks listening to this in 2030, in the week of this recording, (laughs) in the week of this recording, Nelson Mandela passed away. Ah, yes. In coming to talk about this, and I considered actually not discussing this as a topic, because I think... Really, what are we going to add to this? Well, (laughs) do you know why he was in prison? Uh, Probably for blowing up shit. Yeah. And for ordering the... Killings of people as well. Yeah, yeah. He was... Uh, he was a revolutionary. Well, in the modern vernacular, he was a terrorist. Yeah, well, again, yeah, these are all political terms. Certainly. He was a guy using violence engaged in uh, getting out from under the thumb of somebody who had their thumb on them. Yeah. <laughs> and, I mean, his, his record when he got into power and the fair record of his family has, is pretty appalling, too. <sighs> yeah, it, listen, well, again... I don't even want to get into it. 
So okay. I, so I mean, where's it? I mean, so what? What is going to be the? What is going to benefit somebody from hearing our analysis of of this? <laughs> because it's an interesting it's an interesting phenomena that the story that people are told associated with everything in this culture exactly this is just one more of it's just one more well it's a sort of shining example <laughs> hence say. my interest in talking about it this evening <laughs> yeah because i i mean i think it's an interesting phenomena that you can but i, I what i what i don't want to do is um in any way lessen who he was you know he was what he was whatever that is um and like all of us you know we operate with less than optimum knowledge and we take leaps and we do things that we regret and uh and we try and we fuck up and we get angry so um mandela was just a guy who had a large impact on the world. And I think probably all in all for the good, which doesn't deny any of the other stuff. All that other stuff is true. But again, what the, the, the facts on the ground and the impact in the noosphere can be quite divergent. But still, the impact in the noosphere is very important in its own right. Well, it's important if you don't want to see any form of change in the current circumstances of folks living in Africa. Well, there aren't going to be any changes coming until until the revolution. Well, it's not, nothing's going to change anywhere until people start to wake up. Certainly. But the notion of the feel-good associated with Africa as a phenomenon. Oh, yeah, Africa's all cool now. <laughs> is, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, look at that. There's a case where we really succeeded. <laughs> it's just, I, it, I mean, it's difficult to be... You're right. This an is intellectual a entity yeah. in this environment and not talk yeah. against the dominant narrative. Yeah, I agree with you. I just don't see... Um, it's just all part of the story. If you see through the story, once you get everything you've got as a story, then this is small potatoes. This is just another story. <laughs> Except, yes, that's true if you exist as an individual entity. But if you want to create an intellectual discourse or a movement, more importantly, to awaken folks... From well, the that's story. The well, that's exactly the question. How do we do that? So <laughs> my approach has been, foibles and all, to try to create an independent and critical narrative wherever possible. Ah, I, okay. I got it. Absolutely. Yeah. Mother Teresa is another good one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's just, exactly. it's so easy to bash these icons. I, I, I guess it's just that I think so what, you know, yeah, you can bash Mandela. Fuck that. Who cares? Let's get on with it. What, what good is it going to do? I mean, unless it serves to wake people up to the fact that they live in, in a story. And this is another example. But then the focus is different. It's not about how fucked up Mandela is. It's about how fucked up you are for thinking, for believing all this shit. <laughs> yes. But I, it's interesting because within the African-American community, the folks who reacted angrily against the eulogization of Martin Luther King is something that I have, I found early on in my childhood, my early teens, and I found it absolutely fascinating. 
the notion that was a, that was a strong counter narrative to this yeah. individual supposed actions and actually what occurred both through his life and after his his murder and the way in which he is now eulogized as something that's completely independent from no, it, yeah, the struggles right. has, and the plights yeah. of contemporary African Americans yeah. is a very interesting intellectual method, for want of a better term. Well, and I think again, it works because people tend to fucking believe their stories. Well, the stories can sell them a story. Them, and, yeah, well, yeah, and like I say, it, it's, it, it's not the particular content of any story that the problem is. The problem is people's relationship with their story. You know, whether they, whatever story they get stuck in, they think that's what reality is. Yeah. But the information that gives them a degree of comfort, baseless comfort in these... Well, there is no comfort. Exactly. <laughs> I, find, I find deeply... Because ultimately, I think this has always been the intellectual... No, but see, there is movement. comfort. There is comfort. The minute you get that there is no comfort... <laughs> You know? Why don't I disagree? I'm very really comfortable. If you acknowledge that there is no comfort, then it shouldn't bring you comfort. Oh, but it does. <laughs> but well, it might bring you comfort. Well, it certainly did me, yes. Once you give up, once you give up all hope of ever being comfortable, <laughs> I mean, yes. really, it's easy to say you've given up all hope. <laughs> but if you really do have no hope whatsoever, then all you've got is what is here now. And then it, you know, and then you just deal with that. Yeah, that's a, that's wow. Yes, it it is a privilege not to be, uh, you know, have a, a tire put around one's neck with petrol filled in it. And set <laughs> yeah, yeah, in you know, concepts. yeah. We are so. well. This is somebody brought this up recently about yeah how lucky we are. It's true that we live where we do, man. You know, we <laughs> we, we should utilize every opportunity that we absolutely. have to make that statement. Yeah, yeah absolutely. We are the chosen few, really. I mean, if anybody's going to do something like create a new world, it's going to be those of us who've got the luxury <laughs> to sit around and listen to this kind of talk. Amen. Oh, Here's a question from Lorraine from the Biota Podcast. Biota Podcast number 57. A challenge she puts to us. You both seem to think that we either have or soon will transcend biology. Do you think we can transcend chemistry or physics? Mm. Well, what definition of transcendence are you uh, using? Uh, uh, Isn't all this talk of transcendence the very ground of life just some patriarchal fantasy? <laughs> with the perfection, Lorraine. <laughs> Do you want to start with this or should that, I? That's the, yeah, in the Matrix, there are no obstacles. Mm. None. No physical obstacles. Nothing. Anything you can imagine can be as real as you can imagine it. Yes. And God, I can't wait for that. <laughs> yeah, you missed. I mean, this is the interesting thing because I think of it very much in the now because I have programming, like the ability to program things. Yeah, enables you to actually create that reality. And you've got a good, you've got a better imagination than most of us, my friend. Yeah. <laughs> it's a survival mechanism more than anything. I mean, if you don't have an imagination, you can't escape the environments that you're in. Well, you know. God, luckily, you know, there are some people, I think, who actually live in environments they don't need to escape from. Not many, but but there are some. I think they're just kidding themselves. They're cutting themselves. No, I think there are some lucky people who are born. Well, again, there's that thing is that there is no there is no comfort. I mean, yes. uh, no, you well, and it gets down to that. The mystery. We really don't know what the fuck is going on. And that's the bottom line. 
period. We don't know what the fuck is going on. And and that's really sort of the end of the story. We got a bunch of stories that people make up to explain it, you know. Most of it's nonsense. Um, some of it's sort of useful. Uh, but that that's really our condition, isn't it? It is. Well, shit, if you can accept that, then you're a brave soul. Well, it's interesting, actually, <laughs> that Lorraine has kind of fallen has fallen into the concept that when when people use the terms like transcend biology, they're not actually subtly saying and chemistry and physics as well. I mean, I think transcend biology is really yeah a term to describe transcending our environment. All of in it. Total. Yeah. Yeah. Chemistry. Yeah, chemistry and fit. Yeah, she's yeah. just being more specific. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, right. Yeah. yeah. The possibilities in the matrix are, are really limited only by our imagination. And she, she asks us to define what transcendence means <laughs> in this concept. And I will say escaping. Yeah. Yeah. That's one way. I'll just, I'll just decline the opportunity. Thanks for asking. Yeah. <laughs> so the final part of Lorraine's question here is this transcendence the very ground of life just some patriarchal fantasy say or is it no 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 Uh, isn't all this talk of transcendence the very ground of life just some patriarchal Uh, fantasy um i'd have to have a conversation uh lorraine we need to talk about that because i really don't know what the hell that means i'm always curious i mean i guess i've read i've read a good amount of early feminist writings and my understanding of patriarchal fantasy here is very curious because I guess I can't escape my own father in the analysis of what patriarchy means in the circumstance. But, um, I mean, if anything, it's the kind of antithesis of a patriarchal fantasy, I would have thought. I mean, the patriarchal fantasy is ultimately that we are actually comfortable in our positions and would have no need for transcendence. So, yes, Lorraine, follow-up question, please. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So a number of other folks asked questions which I just looked at and thought, hmm, not tonight. And I should actually put this out to the listenership, particularly the new listeners, part of this uncharted 5,000. Yes, yes, guys, come on. That um, we need questions. I mean, we don't necessarily need questions. We've historically been able to jam. No, just say something challenging. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, that's right. It doesn't need to be a question. It just needs to be short. And say something that we can either object to or agree with. Better yet to object to, probably. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, (laughs) yeah. Wouldn't that be fun if uh, there was enough stuff here to just... Keep us jabbering away for, you know, for, with all this stuff, with all these people out there. Yeah, come on, man. Make, <laughs> m- make our job easier. Yes. yes. This is tough. Tom does a lot of work here. So, at the oh. end of last recording, I tried some abstract rapping with you just about topics that hadn't quite, hadn't quite reached the level of topics yet in mm-hmm. my thinking for floating in Stone Ape. Mm-hmm. And we explored the notion. I mean, there's stuff we, that we, have talked about that well never mind go ahead i mean i like to come with a relatively mature in terms of thought idea before i actually float it in stone age ah that's last week to me it's always like okay now we're talking about what (laughs) (laughs) so it's good to know somebody knows what the hell's going on yes yes but i guess i have a variety of topics that i kind of percolate or simmer, for want of a better term, until the stock has reached the, the relevant <laughs> flavour 
for yeah. uh, for yeah, the that's Stony right. Recording. That's right. It makes sense. Yeah. yeah. I had an experience last week. and We made an offer on a house, and then our real estate agent actually cut a separate deal with the seller's lender, which was a curious phenomenon of itself. And it spun me on the spot because we now have to fire our real estate agent and find a new real estate agent because she'd done this deal with the seller's lender. And in the emotion following that, I went to my bookshelf and (laughs) created a donation box, a substantial donation box of about a third of the bookshelf worth of books. I had this emotion associated with the fact that I was being suffocated with my own possessions. And if we were going to live in this environment for any longer, that I had to have a finer grain of the books that I owned versus the books that I discarded. And it was actually really quite a liberating emotion because firstly, it acknowledged that we wouldn't get into this bind with this house that was by this, you know, two lane roadway. We had escaped from that environment. But more importantly, the thing that was important to me was my freedom and my ability to move at a moment's notice. And that was also being confined by this experience. One of these topics that I would have thought about and probably matured in prior Stone Apes, but I wanted to throw out there as a kind of emotional thing. Hmm. Any points? I mean, you've you've gone through periods where you've gotten rid of your books. But yeah. have you done that in an instantaneous emotion? Or have you just looked around and thought, why the hell do I have these books? And then periodically remove them from your environment. No, it was all done at once. Yeah. During a move. Yeah. I just looked at all that and I realized, you know, those are all really important, but I'm not going to read them again. And I'm going to have to move all this shit over to the next place yeah. and put them all back on the shelf. And I'm just carrying these things around, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I boxed them up, took them over to the library and said, here you go. <laughs> when I first moved to the U.S., I was extremely minimalist. I moved here with three, well, actually 13 very small boxes that I said to myself, two of which were damaged beyond repair. All the photographs I owned and some books that I had were just destroyed through that move. But it meant that I lived... The the most important thing in my life was... Uh, you know the 50 caliber ammunition uh, cases? They're yeah. Like, they're like cans, military cans that they put bullets in. Mm-hmm. That yeah. had all my important documents in it. And that was basically the most important thing that I owned. I had a couple of computers that I got rid of through that period of time. Um blankets and pillows that i owned i donated yeah it's good to get rid of all that stuff yeah i lived very very in a very minimalist fashion yeah and you know getting married and all these kind of things adds stuff to your life it doesn't have to i mean you well, can't no it doesn't have to the I mean, nature the nature of cohabitation what? means that there's at least going to be there someone else's hairbrush and you know not necessarily you can get two bathrooms well, except that's still, it's still the same amount of stuff. You just spread it between two bathrooms. Well, yeah, but you don't have to deal with it. Yeah. You know, I'm just saying, you, yeah. you know, I mean, we all create the reality we live in, period. That's the end of it. Yes. We create it. Yes. By the choices we make, by every day. Yeah. So a topic that I will actually put out to the listenership is that I have far too many cats. How many do you have now? Uh, I'm not sure if I should legally <laughs> that in an audio podcast. Let's say if you were to hold up your hand and count the digits in front, our in-laws were supposed to... Um, anyway, less than 10, you're saying. Yes, less than 10. Okay, less than 10. Our in-laws were supposed to hold one of these cats, the large feral cat that caused 
so much annoyance when we lived in a larger house in Las Vegas. He came back with my wife a couple of weeks ago. So we've had the addition <laughs> of a, he's, he's 28 inches from nose to tail. He's a huge cat. Yeah. Anyway, and I want to put out to the listenership, particularly the listenership that lives in the San, broader San Francisco Bay Area, or more mm-hmm. importantly, we will actually fly a cat to you. If you are interested in owning, <laughs> in the greater continental US, a cat... You will fly the cat to them. Yes. You see, one of our model rail radio participants actually offered to take our cat, Bertie, and I thought he was serious, and I actually worked to the point of costing flying Bertie yeah, to North yeah, Carolina, yeah, where he yeah. was, and then he That's was right. just like, oh, no, that was a joke. Oh, Sorry. fuck him. So, yes. That's not a very good joke. No. <laughs> so I'll put out to my listeners, yeah. our listeners in the greater continental US, yeah. if you want a, a barbelade-endorsed cool. cat. That's great. I was so fortunate. I had one cat, and yeah. that was one too many. Yeah. But I loved that cat. Yeah. And he loved me. Yeah. And But I was never home, and he was lonely, and so it, it was just not a good life for him. So luckily, he was the best cat. In the whole world. Hmm. Uh, he was so relaxed. I could hold him up by his, by one, I could grab one of his hind legs and lift him up in the air and he would just hang there. <laughs> the views of Heronstone do not necessarily represent the Stone Age podcast. <laughs> he was just very cool and relaxed. Yes. He was a great cat. And everybody I knew wanted him. And yeah. so luckily it worked out great for, for me because I had a bunch of people that wanted him. And, and I knew that he really needed a better place to live than, than with me. So I gave him to this girl I knew who lived at home with her parents and her grandparents who were always wow. at home. Wow. <laughs> you know? And so that cat was in heaven. Wow. <laughs> it was just awesome. And I went over to visit him once and he saw me and he took off. Like, no, I'm not back he was him. probably worried I was going to take him back. Hold him by something. his hind legs again. <laughs> Let me get away from Aaron. That <laughs> was great. So he, he just had a wonderful life after, after I got through torturing him. So he liked you given no other options, but as soon as another option was presented, you immediately were identified. <laughs> well, he got, he had a great life, man. Yeah. He, the, the two, these two, the grandparents were there like all the time and they didn't have anything better to do than play with him. He was a very sociable cat. That was the problem is that, um, you know, it's just, he, he, he was beginning it to be a problem when I was there, you know, cause he just wouldn't leave me alone. Yeah. And uh, so I realized, you know, I need to get this guy a home where he'll be happy. <laughs> yes. He was great. I don't have any pictures of him or anything. I'm really, really sorry that I don't. He was yeah. black and white and sort of long-haired, and he has just sort of blotchy patches of black, mostly black with these white splotches on his face and stuff. Uh-huh. God, what a great cat. Uh-huh. Best cat I ever owned, for sure. His name was Balzac. you named him no doubt of course i don't even know where i got him you know now i think about it well some of the best cats just show up yeah i don't know yeah the problem is just if some of the best cats show up some other cats will show up as well so yeah yeah i don't know if i bought i don't think i bought him i think i I, I honest to god i mean i certainly i didn't buy him yeah you know he must have just shown up i guess I, i i have no idea but he was cool. He was a good cat. 
Yes. <laughs> I have fond memories of cats as much as I rag on them. Yeah. I lived with a lady who was a cat lady. And we you had told me that. Yeah, yes. four or five of them. It was great. Yeah. yeah, about zucchini who kept hitting his head on the bottom of the table when he'd jump up. Certainly. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so you're, yeah, yeah, so I'm, I'm in league with you on cats. They're cool. Yes. I think the, yeah, they're, interest, they're interesting and diverse creatures that have such unique, I mean, this is the thing that frustrated me with the monkeys in the cage with the feeding, mm-hmm. is you'd need to be pretty inept not to understand that the monkey would get pissed off. I mean, it really makes me wonder. Yeah. Oh, yeah, people under it. Well, they think, see, we think we're not really monkeys. <laughs> yeah, the biologists need to be really. Yeah, they shouldn't do that. You know, that, that's, that, you know, but no, man, that's monkey. That's monkey shit <laughs> that you're looking at there. Yes. <laughs> oh, I don't like that. Yes. The same, I mean, yes, if you did the same experiment with cats, you would have a similar thing. I mean, you know, not... I, I wonder, that would be off, interesting to see. Yes. yes. I don't know if that's true or not. Um, I can tell you it's true. It, it, well, it depends on the cats, I suspect, because my sense of cats is that is that they are wildly different from each other at times, and that maybe there are very distinct types of cat behaviors or psyches that are very distinct from one another. Hmm. I saw through Facebook, which seems to be the way that these things are now presented to me, the 100 years of different dog breeds. I'm not sure if you saw that. No, I haven't. But they took breeder photos of 100 oh, years God, ago yeah. compared to breeder photos <laughs> now. Yeah, wow. It is interesting because they did, ch- I mean, they have changed in 100 years, so even though oh, they're sticking yes. to specific breeds and what have you. Yeah. It's interesting because they've become a lot less, I mean, in general, they were a lot smaller and stockier and. More, I mean, you could tell that there were still practical applications for the dogs a hundred years ago. The Alsatians, for yeah. example, were clearly, you know, hunting attack dogs. Now, obviously, that's less important unless there are police dogs. But you can see the <coughs> um, infantilization, for want of a better term, mm. of ah, the dog species yeah. over time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah it's all human psychology. <laughs> Yes. What, what do we want them to look like? Yes. And the idea, the kind of perennial idea associated with sleep, I've also been seeing a lot through Facebook recently, that what we should in fact do is have two large, well, two sleep periods separated by two or three hours where, you know, people would go and visit. Well, that's, and, I don't think you can ju- I don't think you can say that's for everybody. I think really everybody's got to figure it out for themselves. Well, I the think problem is actually that the environments, particularly the work environments that we create. Oh, ourselves. that's the problem. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. We've got this civilization that's built around going to bed and being, you know, sleeping eight hours from 10 yeah. to six, you know? Yeah. Well, the interesting yeah. thing is, I mean, with my work now, I'm working with a team that works up until about 1am. And I used to do this when I, um, worked with an Australian company was there was this phenomena associated with other teams working later and you'd have to keep in contact with them and all this kind of stuff. But I'm trying to, although truth be told three days out of this week, I had to stay up to this kind of midnight plus thing for work, but I try to assert to the teams that I will get back to them first thing in the morning. And then yeah, first actually- thing in the morning, they're sound asleep. Well, no, <laughs> but, but there's a natural periodicity in work. That even though they're going to work till midnight, 
me giving them details at 2am are useless for them. They're yeah. going to wake up, come into work, and I will have the details ready for them. I just won't be waiting for them to finish sometime yeah. between midnight and 1am. Yeah. Right, yeah. That sounds reasonable. And Here's actually, job it's, for the night. Do yeah, it. Actually, it's been viewed with a degree of reason, particularly because I'm part of an independent team, that I'm actually able to do that, thankfully. If I was part of their teams, I'd go nuts. Yeah, well, dealing with even intelligent language monkeys can be a real problem. Yes. I mean, it, it's not easy. I don't know how you do it, really. I'm a firm believer <clears throat> that um, projects that are developed, software projects primarily, need not overshoot in terms of time, need not require you know people pulling all-nighters and these kind of things. I actually think that you can divide software projects and engineer them in such a way that these things aren't needed. Well, as long as you account for the possibility that you've missed a few things well, and exactly. add a little bit of a cushion on that. That's exactly how <laughs> you do it. The question is, you how much of a cushion do you need? You don't do everything in the last minute. The notion is that if you have a period of time to produce a project, you divide it and you allocate the work. Because the thing about creating new software or new ideas through software is that there, you know at least a third of the way what you need to do. And the next third may be based on the previous third, and the final third is certainly based on the second third. But there is actually a process that you can go through. And the way that you protect this, which is what I'm doing currently with Noble Ape, is by making sure that every part of the process is validated as well. You know, there's act- there are actual yeah. methods for doing proper yeah. engineering. Yeah, but there's... The, we- yeah, that's part of how we're going to run Earth. Yes. Too, by the way, is that yeah. we haven't got all these methods yet. But yeah. really, the, as far as most of the decision making about how the planet's going to run efficiently will be done by computers. So, about five years ago, a fellow called Justin Lyons contacted me, and he was working with a company called Simiodyne based in London, who did work for the Iraqi government. They were intellectual contractors for the Iraqi government. They created universities, uh, shopped for academics, brought them into the Kurdish region of Iraq, set up stable universities, you know, created an intellectual climate that would, you know, sustain people in Iraq that had basically been, you know, this war-torn strife. And the point that he made through this period was that a number of the people that were in political positions in Iraq were engineers, that through whatever unfolded through the invasion and occupation, the only people that they could find for any jobs, because the politicians were either tarnished or killed, like the traditional politicians, and the politicians that the Americans brought in were killed pretty quickly as well. <laughs> so the only people that were left yeah. were engineers. So this probably could be worse. The vice president and all the other people in a you know in a variety of the points of infrastructure in Iraq were engineers mm. and he pointed out many of us wouldn't know this because of obviously the language difficulties but the Iraqi constitution that was written after you know after the invasion after you know the Americans started to remove the forces was um based on engineering and computational principles it's actually a very interesting constitution to read in this light very curious. You'd never know about this in, mm. you know, through what the media provides to you about a country like Iraq. But the well, I think the, the the religious people of Iraq probably aren't in alignment with them, are they? Well, you see, this is this is the this is the point that I'll make back to Chris Abbott. If we, i.e., non-language monkeys, can produce an environment of stability and comfort for the language monkeys. 
There's no reason for them to get pissed off and attack us. Oh, that has nothing to do with it. No, you're right. There's no reason, no reasonable reason for them to get pissed off and attack us. Yeah. But they're not reasonable. Well, you see, that that's doesn't true. necessarily follow. That's true. However, if you give them extra, we'll have to be very clever of food <laughs> and extra good episodes of Dancing with the Stars. But, but then the point is, why are we doing? Why are we dancing around these assholes? And providing them with all this shit. Because there's a notion of symbiotic benefit. Really? What are we getting from them? They're not killing us. <laughs> We're not killing them. Well, that doesn't matter. That's not a notion of symbiosis in the circumstance. <laughs> if we pissed them off and aggravate No, them, in the beginning, you're right. No, you're right. In the beginning, we have to be more accommodating. Exactly. Yeah. But later on, we won't have to be so accommodating. Perhaps not. But but you're right. For now, yeah, it's better, you know, yes, sir, and uh, no, sir. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Which I think is actually the philosophy of these engineer politicians in Iraq. I mean, it's interesting because... It's a completely counter-narrative to everything that we hear about Iraq. Yeah. And I had to do some investigation following it because it initially struck me as just being ridiculous. But the more Well, the government could be completely rational, but if you've got people blowing up shit all around you, <laughs> what the fuck are you supposed to do? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, even if you are rational, there is no response to irrationality. Well, it's not even irrationality. It's just a different kind of rationality. Yes, that involves blowing. Bl- involves people. blowing shit up. Yeah. yeah, it's another story again. <laughs> yes. So, last recording, I lamented the fact that I and I do reflect actually when I look at the Stone Ape Facebook group that a number of the demographics of the people that are represented in the Stone Ape Facebook group represent people I've known or people I'm related to in Australia. And it's interesting, actually, because the phenomena associated with getting someone to listen to a podcast, to take half an hour, an hour, two hours out of there, whatever they're doing. Really? Yes, that's, yeah, I'm amazed. How do you convince people to do that? Well, obviously, we've been relatively successful passively to convince people to do that. But how do you actually actively convince people to do that? Well, you don't. You just offer them the opportunity and the rest is up to them. You can try to be seductive in it, I suppose, Mm. but there's really, you can't, you know? The current phenomena that I've been exploring, which I'm actually starting to cultivate in terms of looking at myself in the mirror every evening, is the thought of doing an offshoot of what we do on Stone Ape as a talking head YouTube clip and maybe taking half a dozen of the concepts in every given Stone Ape and then just presenting oh, oh, three to five minutes talking to... Talking or even less, maybe maybe, uh, maybe three clips in a minute. Well, just enough to, to go, huh? Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah. look, there's a, there's a series of kind of dysfunctional ways yeah. to do it. Well, there's a number of possibilities anyway. Yeah. yeah, there's a number. Within that's the a neat idea. Form, there's yeah. ways of getting the information out there. Yeah, sure. And the thing that strikes me is that there are a number of relatively, and when I say successful here that have 100,000, 200,000 subscribers really? that are exactly this. They are kind of yeah. scattershot <laughs> format, and people yeah. do appear to watch them. Yeah, well, yeah, isn't it amazing? Mm. I don't know why anybody listens to this. <laughs> yes. I mm. certainly don't. Well, clearly. But, yeah. yeah, it's interesting because, I mean, the, the, if anything is the takeaway from Stone Ape, it should be that, firstly... 
I, I hope we would be relatively unpredictable in our <laughs> discourse. It's interesting because our early... To me, it seems so predictable. (laughs) Well, our early early listener, Gerald de Jong, who I don't think listens anymore, got frustrated with a number of the ideas and sent me a series (laughs) of emails saying that we spend far too much time not talking about things in this Mm. form. That we are very much interested in meta-concepts, philosophy, these kind of things, but we very rarely talk about kind of practical, Ah. you know, examples that's a valid uh i think that's a valid uh criticism yes i'm certainly but it's not a criticism it's just a style yeah (laughs) that's you know but i would like i mean what i'm trying to do periodically through this format is offer things that are closer to what gerald yeah i agree i think it's important to touch all the bases Yeah. yeah absolutely except sometimes it can get really specific like going into the details of the architecture of a reasonable world I mean, I could do that, but I'm not sure this is the place to do that. Yes. And Lorraine asked a question specifically associated with energy shortage and what happens to computer technology through energy shortage. And I thought this is yeah. this is something which is in the scope oh, of what yeah. we talk about in Stone yeah, but it's really, it's more KMOs. Well, but I, think, I still think it's a really important topic, though. I mean... I mean, it's it's fundamental to our future. I, we, I don't see any future without computers, really. Yes. You know, I mean, it's it's that or the caves. Yes. I'll take computers. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> so I'm thinking that we're going to do. I, I I think that'll be the last thing to go down. If that goes down, then the game's over. But uh, the oil shortage is really irrelevant. That just means uh, we cut. You know, you won't be able to have a car anymore. Sorry. Yes. But, but uh, the computers, they're going to be running because without the computers, the whole fucking thing goes down. So it, it may be unfortunate when the energy crunch hits, but if it does, because I still think solar is going to save our ass. Mm. <laughs> but in the meantime, it, it may get more expensive. But it, it, again, it, it's, it's just going to mean it, we're not just going to end oil one day. There's going to be less and less of it, and the price is going to go up and up for what's left. And that'll determine, and whatever we think is important is what we're going to use that oil for. And if what we think is important is keeping the computer systems running, then that's what we're going to use the oil for, and the rest of the shit just won't happen. Tough. Yeah, one of my, well, he's not really a co-worker. He works in another team, but I work with him closely, owns an exclusively electric car. And I suspect probably our next car in about seven to ten years when our current one oh, by out, then, yeah, sure, by will then. be an electric car. I was hoping sure, that this yeah. one would be an electric car, but they just they just yeah. weren't in the price. No, not price. yet, but yeah, t- five, yes. ten years from now, shit, yes, yeah. And we really do need the people that are buying them currently in order to push the price down and improve the technology. So I'm very, yeah. I'm very thankful for the earlier. Well, but as the price of cars. gas goes up, which it is going to continue to do, yes. uh, all these uh, trade-offs will become just part of the process. Yeah, you know, and the poor people are going to get squeezed out, and that's going to create problems. Well, it's interesting actually because the state of California has legislated against electric mopeds and a variety of low-end electric vehicles that they've basically illegalized, which I've found very curious. That's interesting, yeah. Because, I mean, my view has always been if you put an electric that, motor that on a seems pretty obvious. battery, that seems very obvious. Why would you make that illegal? And they have. 
Well, so if that's important to you, so start a movement. Change that. That's well, bullshit. Start driving illegally with one of these electrically powered That's right, and take it to court. Bicycles. Yeah. That's right. Make one, get arrested, yeah. take it to court. Yep. Go for it, Tom. Uh, that'd be awesome. <laughs> yes. What if I, I don't currently... You could announce here where you're going to be, when you're going to do it, right in front of the police station. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll cycle Make the it state of California. Yeah. I'll go from yeah. end to end. I think that's the way to do well, it. Well, I think you just do it in front of the police station. That'd probably do it, wouldn't it? I don't know if the police know the law sufficiently to... <laughs> well, you'd let them know. Yeah. Hey, I'm doing something illegal. <laughs> yeah, here, you come out here and arrest me. Yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, I don't actually currently own a bicycle. My wife owns a bicycle. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think I need to actually get one. I walk everywhere. I mean, it's that's my yeah. That, well, why would you go on a bike if you can walk everywhere? Mode of transportation. I think bikes give you slightly better distance and slightly better. Um, well, it's a little faster. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot faster. Yeah. yeah, hell yes. You can go for broader distances too. Generally. Sure, you can go further. You can go yeah. places that you would really couldn't very comfortably go walking for sure. Yeah. When I was about. I don't know how old. I was a little kid. We used to ride to this place called Knott's Berry Farm. Oh, I know about, Knott's Berry Farm. Yeah. Which was I, and probably, I mean, it seemed like this huge trek on a bicycle for two 10-year-olds. Yes. But my neighbor friend and I would bicycle from our house to Knott's Berry Farm, you know, all the time during the summer. Yes. And it, and it was like a big adventure. <laughs> you know, because it was like we'd go out there and we'd spend a couple hours there because it was free at that time. There was no admission or anything. You'd, so did you get ferries or what did you do there? Oh, no, Knott's Berry Farm is a, a, an amusement park. But it's based on actually a berry farm. They oh, there was sell- a berry farm there at some point. Yeah, yeah. you could buy, yeah, but that was that was not why anybody went there. It's it, In that point, it was an amusement park, but there was no admission charge. Every ride, you know, you go in there and buy tickets. Yeah. To get on rides and stuff. But you could just go hang out there. Yeah. So that was what we did. We'd just go hang out there. And it took us like an hour to ride there on our bicycles. I mean, that was like this big adventure. Yes. <laughs> you know, for a 10-year-old or 12. I don't know. Maybe we were 16. I don't know. Yes. I don't know how old we were. Yeah, Knott's Berry Farm was part of my wife's uh, childhood experience. Oh, really? Since she grew up close to me then. Yeah. Yeah, she did. Yeah, I was in Lakewood. Oh, okay. I, I know Lakewood. Uh, she was in Brea, uh, but... Oh, that's a lot. That's, yeah, okay. But yeah. she went with her parents, obviously. She didn't cycle there. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. No, I know... That's I a know, lot further, yeah. Yeah, I know the Lakewood area, too. Yeah, yeah. You know 5413 Autry Avenue? <laughs> Is that where you grew up? Yep. <laughs> Let me actually do this. I, um, this you can is, look it up on Google Maps. Yeah, right? I know Street View. Let's have a yeah, look at this. 5413 Autry Avenue. 50. In fact, the house next door has still got this big. I looked at it, at it you know, a couple of years ago. Uh, A-U-T-R-Y? Right. <laughs> well, hell, I guess I ought to look it up, too, if we're going to play this game. Yeah, damn skippy. Okay. Oh, my goodness. Look at this. Look at this. God. Yeah, I haven't looked at it for some time, so uh, this will be, uh, this, this could be interesting. This looks relatively similar to where you currently live, Heron. I mean, in terms of architecture, at least. A little older, but still relatively similar. I mean, they've got better gardens, perhaps. <laughs> there it is. Interesting. Yeah, okay. The house to the south of me mm-hmm. was where the Moors lived. Okay. Yeah, Harry Moore and his wife, Amelda, <laughs> and their six daughters. Gosh. And that's why the add-on to the back of the house. Gosh. <laughs> wow. 
So the one with the awning is the one where they lived? Uh, well, Sorry, I'm, I'm on Street View. I'm not on the... Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I'm just looking down. I don't know about... Let me look at Street View. Uh, yeah, they are south. It has an awning on the front. Um, well, hold on. Let me, let, me, uh, let me see what it looks like from the Street View. That's even better, isn't it? Yeah. Let's see. Was it 24... What was it? 2414 or 24... 5413. 54, Sorry. Okay, so you're on the other side. Sorry, I'm looking at the wrong side. 54, 30, oh wow. Okay, so that's very different on that side. Okay, yeah, there's, there's one with an awning. Uh, that's the one I was talking about. You can't see the, the back of the house where the, where the add-on is. Yes. For, for all the girls. <laughs> yes. Gosh. And this house looks exactly like it did. Tiny room. I mean, when I think about it today, when I think of the size of those bedrooms, I mean, they were yes. just tiny. Yes. You know, God, little tiny things. It's, and yet they, you know, that was, I didn't feel deprived, <laughs> but everything was so small. Yes. Yeah, you were very close to your neighbors on either side. Oh, yeah. It's just uh, house after house after house. Yeah. And G- Jeannie Wall lived across the street in, uh, she was the most beautiful girl in the world. <laughs> was she your age or was she older? She was older, of course. Uh-huh. Yeah, she wouldn't, she was like three years older than me. Uh-huh. Yeah, so obviously there was no. So you had a perpetual there. crush on this. Oh yeah, yeah. God, I just, I just had the hots for her. Uh-huh. And the guy across the street from me had a motorcycle and let me try it, and I almost killed myself on it. Luckily, I didn't dump it. I didn't fall off it. But very I good. Went, I went through a front yard and tore up some hedges. <laughs> <laughs> you were that neighborhood kid. Oh man, it, it was, was so scary. I mean, I, you know, I, I was just hanging on to the handlebars. For life, but of course, hanging onto the handlebars is accelerating it. Yes. If you've ever ridden a motorcycle, it's yes. twisting the the handlebar. So that's really bad design, you know. Now that I think about it, that's well, it's bad design for a scared child. Group well, especially if after a fifteen year old who yeah. thinks he's hot shit riding this cool motorcycle. But like I say, I managed to survive it without dropping the bike, you know. But I did go, like I say, through somebody's front yard and through a hedge. <laughs> I haven't thought about that in years. Oh, God. That was so scary. Oh, man, that was scary. Yeah. So you spent a period of time in your front yard then, if you knew the neighbors so well. Is that how you knew the neighbors? Because you'd be oh, tinkering I, I, on something I in was front a budding, I was a budding young language monkey. Yeah. You know, I was well indoctrinated. I knew the neighbors. Um, I liked the neighbors. My best friend, Don Oldenburg, lived down the street about, 12 houses or 10 or 12 houses uh-huh. guys in the far corner. Uh, I knew them. I knew, you know, yeah, I knew all these people. Yeah, it was cool. I liked it. And you lived there. You, you returned there. Did you, your mother live? Oh, in- no, no. I lived there till I went into the service, uh-huh. so like the third grade to when I had been in college for like two years. So this was, this was after your father's death. Well, he died when we lived here. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's pretty much my growing up years, yeah. And your parents rented this house or they owned the house? Uh, they owned it. Gosh. And you went into the service and then your mother sold this place and moved into an apartment. Uh, yeah. I think she she lived in a trailer for a while. She tr- tried a mobile home and then uh-huh. then moved into an apartment after that. Then she sold that and moved into a an apartment. Interesting. She must have I'm just doing the math on this. 
She must have made some good money selling this house. Uh, I have no idea. Sixties. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I have no idea. Yeah, yeah. You know that that is completely out of my experience. I, you know, oblivious to that kind of stuff. Interesting. So, but when you lived in the beach communities, your mother was still living in this house. Yes, I used to visit her sometimes there. Yeah. So it's not that you lived there until you went into the service, because there were periods of time where you were living in the beach communities where you weren't living there. That's right. Yeah, I lived there until I went into the service. That's right. And then oh, after when you that, came back, you lived in the beach communities. Yeah, I ne- well, I might have lived there for a few weeks or so. I, I don't remember. That's interesting. I'm not quite sure. But my memory is that uh, as soon as I got back from basic training and I was stationed in L.A., yeah. uh, I, I moved to you know, to the beach yeah. in Hermosa beach. Yes. God, that was glorious. <laughs> <laughs> yes. It was just, it was so cool. <laughs> it's interesting actually, because I mean, part of this halfway through my natural life thinking <laughs> is just how I've not maximized those kind of times. You know, I've experienced them periodically, but I've never thought, well, well just be thankful everything. for the few that you get, man. Exactly. Yes, <laughs> you know, exactly. so many people don't appear to get any. Yes, true. You know, it's just sad. Yeah. Yes. Interesting. Yeah, I, I, I think I'm just the luckiest guy in the world, really, in so many ways. You know, just it's just blind fucking luck. <laughs> you know, you just happen to get these experiences or not, you know, who knows? <laughs> so I have another question about this house. When your parents and, and you moved into it, was it a new build? Had it just been constructed? Mm, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Uh-huh. I, I think not. I think they were, I don't think they were old. I think they were, well, I just don't know. You yeah. Know? I don't know. I mean, I guess that would be easy to find out with today's internet, you know, Certainly. when this tract was built. Yes. And, uh, and I remember, though, I was in the third grade when we moved here. Yes, certainly. So, you know, it, I don't know. I, my sense is they were, they were, certainly weren't old, you know. They, yes. They were post-war for sure. Yeah. Well, you know, actually, I don't know. I shouldn't say that. It, it, just looking at them, they lo- it looks like post-World War II. You know, I mean, there was a huge building boom. Yeah, well, they certainly built similar-style houses here. All over the place. Yeah, in the 1950s. Yeah. The thing that I look for is there's a particular kind of fireplace that they all seem to have. Ah, there are no fireplaces in any of these houses. Ah, okay. So that might make them even later than the early ones that I'm seeing. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they don't need no stinking fireplace. Well, you're right, actually. The price down, you know, this is California for Christ's sake. Yes. (laughs) No, the houses here are of similar size that we look at, actually. We look at these kind of houses, but they were designed specifically for engineers. Uh So they had extra fixtures, like, as you say, a fireplace and these kind of things. Yeah, yeah. I'm just struck now because I went and visited that place, uh, I don't know how many years ago, 20, 30 years ago now, mm. uh, and met the people who lived there. And, and I'm ju- just stunned by how small the place is. Yeah. I mean, it's so claustrophobic, you know? Yeah. I mean, given the fact that I live in a single room now, and I still think about those, and I, those rooms, they were like eight feet by eight feet. Yes. God, I mean, they were just tiny. But they were probably palatial for the for the from the psychology. Well, again, of, from nineteen, yeah, from and none of it felt that way. It felt just like home, you know. Yes. It was not a problem. Yeah, you know, it's just this is home. Yeah, 
But like I say, when I think about it now, it's just amazing how our perspective changes. Yeah. Well, of course, and when you're physically smaller, that makes some difference too, I suppose. Yeah, my brothers live in the family home. They live in the home that they were born in. Ah. And they've periodically, I mean, they've occasionally moved away, but never for more than a year. Uh-huh. And then they just live in the family home now. I mean, they're basically the, they're the, I don't know, landlords for this. They live there now. Yeah. Yeah. And it was actually, I spent 10 years away. It was actually quite strange going back there and realizing that all this, and the house was originally built, I guess, in the 1940s. Mm. It's very much that 40s build. The rooms are huge. What what they have done is removed walls, although they put yeah, that, back in. Yeah, that that, that really helps. To, yeah, yeah, right. To expand yeah. It. yeah, and my it, parents it, built on to the house. They built an extension. Here is what I can do. We can do the same thing associated with my family. Ah, yes. Let's cool. do this. Uh, so I don't know which way I'm pointing. I'm not pointing in the right. Do you see direction. a red car? Uh, I will in a moment, probably. Ah, yes, I see the red car, and that white house uh, is. Is the one behind the eucalyptus tree? Yeah, down the driveway. Yeah. So my parents b- built the two. Oh, it's a nice above. neighborhood. It's cool. It's a yeah. It's a relatively Look, upmarket neighborhood. Yeah, it looks like America. <laughs> Except more eucalypts. Yeah. Well, the, the, that's big in California. Yes. Yeah. Lots yeah. of eucalyptus trees in California. <laughs> yes. Anyway, so that's yeah. The who cares home. about Australia? Fuck Australia! <laughs> Eucalyptus trees are from California. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Truth be told, probably we will plant. I mean, I will intentionally plant eucalypts and what we buy here, just because it, if nothing more, with these places with fireplaces, eucalypts give great firewood. So you've always got kindling with eucalypts. Yeah, good trees. Yes, but anyway, that's the family home equivalent there. And, yeah, not a lot to say about that, but as you say, small rooms. The things that I remember are the toilet and bathrooms in particular mm-hmm. because they're very small and yeah, kind of Yeah, yeah, really small, yeah. yeah. Just to, Well, but they're enough to do what you need to do. Yeah. And no more. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know? And that's all you need. <laughs> yes. Yeah, same thing. Yeah, the bathrooms were tiny. You really couldn't really comfortably put two people in the bathroom. Yeah, no, it's impossible in these style houses. So. <laughs> well, I say, it's just interesting how our ideas of space have changed in the last generation. Yeah. I think light is a big thing as well. I mean, the frustrations that I remember from my childhood time, although it did have large windows, but it was just the general level of darkness, which is indicative of the area that I'm from in Australia more than anything as well. well what, is, what does that mean? It's kind of dark and cold most of the year. It's actually got some of the worst weather in Australia, basically. Mm. So, yeah, you could anticipate maybe eight months of grey. <laughs> kind of breaking One of our listeners, Paul Brian Hancock, who lives in Hong Kong but was born in Adelaide, South Australia, is going on a around Australia trip currently, and he, he was in Canberra, Australia, my hometown, and he went to the War Memorial specifically based on my recommendation <laughs> from Stone Eight. Yeah, cool. He's also a listener who I've met. He attended the... Model Rail Radio get-together in Adelaide, South Australia, because he was coming through at the time. Um, and I actually had the opportunity to meet him and his wife, which was wonderful. Hmm. So, yes, he's one of our Stone Out listeners who I've actually met. Extraordinary as that may sound. Well, who knows where this could lead? Yes. You know? <laughs> yeah, I'm surprised, actually, particularly with the number of our, you know, Los Angelian listeners that uh, folks haven't tried to uh, seek you out. They better not. 
Yes, I wonder if they could actually work out your employer based on our ongoing discussions. If they were obsessed. If they were obsessed. <laughs> yeah, I was able to find your employer through some means, I think. Yeah, I don't think it'd be that difficult if uh, I think you've if actually you'd listened to every goddamn one and yeah, taken notes. Yeah, you've announced their and, website at, in yeah. some part of our discussion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's it's out there. If somebody was obsessed about it, for the obsessed fans, please. That's right. For you out there, if you're the guy who's obsessed with it, then you've got some work ahead of you. Yeah. <laughs> and if you don't know where I work, then you really haven't been listening. Then you're so. really seriously in, bra- in trouble. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's basically <laughs> listener comprehension stone eight one oh one right there. No, but you'll have to do some work to figure it out for me. Yes. Well, you'll have to do some work to figure it out for him. No, I don't necessarily think it's going to be. Well, I'll have to listen. Yeah, I guess so. I'd well, actually be interested. Be obsessed if they weren't listening. I'd, so. I'd be interested. I, we get free lunches at Netflix, and if any listeners want to stop by Netflix for a free lunch and a chat, I'm more than happy to facilitate. <laughs> so. Oh, boy, I'd be careful about saying shit like that. I don't know. I've, I'd, I'd want an email and a little chat on Skype first. Well, you would, Aaron. I don't care about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're just a whore, aren't you? Well, you know, if they knife me, then Stone Ape becomes then this body of work becomes absolutely infamous. Not uh, that I'm advocating anyone knife. Well, if there's somebody out there who wants to take the trouble to to moder- yeah, market it, and otherwise it'll just be over. <laughs> well, no, actually, for me, in which case it'll just be over. Yes. But the Internet Archive will at least persist the audio for some length of time. You know, that's, I, I love that. The fact that this shit is out there, it's going to be out there. Yeah. It's just part of what's out there now. I was contacted by a fellow. There was a, there's a radio show, a radio show that's recorded actually as we record these in Montreal called We Funk that I was a rabid listener to for a number of years. I've kind of toned down. But I used to donate annually to the... Uh, McGill College Radio Funding Drive in Montreal, based on listening to this radio show. So the hosts of the show I'm actually quite friendly with, and um, through the week I was looking at pod- pe- podcasts that people who listen to Stonate also listen to, because I wanted to get a sense of what kind of stuff our listeners no, 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 say listen that to. again. Say that again. In addition to Stonate, our listeners listen to other podcasts, and iTunes tracks what other podcasts they listen to. Oh, really? So it oh, provides to me a list of podcasts that ah. our listeners are listening to. Ah, One yeah. of these podcasts had a series of really interesting topics, and I thought, wouldn't it be great to listen to this interesting podcast with the interesting topics? I clicked on it, and it was a series of 30-second clips of Podomatic saying, this podcast has exceeded its bandwidth. If you like the <laughs> contents of this podcast, please donate to it, i.e. so Podomatic makes money, and then the poor schmuck who put his podcasts on Podomatic, you know. <laughs> so I thought to myself, this is just a, thankfully... This I've is been, one of the, the clueless people who listen to this. <laughs> create podcasts that are immediately part of this Podomatic scam. Yes. But anyway, by posting that to my Facebook page, people were concerned that I actually used Podomatic. And the DJ on this uh, <laughs> WeFunk radio show contacted me and he said he had two servers in uh, France that he would d- donate to me if I wanted to put Stone Ape and all my other podcasts on another server just in case the Internet Archive ever died. So I took him up on that offer. Right? He's Hell yes. The details and Hell yes. Give it to him. Yeah, here for, it is, yeah, man. Yeah. yeah. Great. 
One of the things about using the Internet Archive is actually that we can't get the meaningful download stats. All we can get is the uh, stats associated with the XML feed. If mm-hmm. I had the audio ho- hosted on a server that I had better access to, I could actually tell how... Well, for the folks listening to it as a file, how much of it they actually listen to, and a variety of other things. Now, if they yeah. download the whole thing and listen to it through you know, their iPod or what have you, then I don't have that access. But yeah. it would give me slightly more information other yeah. than the broader demographics. I'm not actually sure. To be honest, I don't think I get the demographics. What I said at the start of this recording is, in fact, incorrect, because what I'm getting is all the Noble Ape site demographics through that. So I don't think I can actually focus it down on the individual XML file and work out the demographics for that, unfortunately. Model Rail Radio, because it's the only... I use a, the domain name to host the site, uh, to host the feed as well. Gives me far better statistics associated, but I don't think I could actually do the demographics of Stone Ape, unfortunately. Anyway. Well, you know, um, what's important is building a community. Yes. And that's why I'm here. Yes. <laughs> and uh, we can build the statistics from that. I think it's going to take time, though. Yes. I think to encourage people to participate is really the first part. Because what we have currently is is one percent. We have the one percent of folks who are willing. We to don't even have one percent yet. I mean, they well, are no, part of the one percent. Yeah, yeah. That are willing to participate through Facebook. Yeah, we have a few folk who participate through yeah. email. And we want more. We want yes. more of you to, to step out. Yeah. This sounds like one of those Christian revival meetings. This is like a, this is a altar call. Feel <laughs> you know? the power, Heron. We Take want you. We want Take you to power, come forward Heron. and declare yourself. Oh man! <laughs> oh man! Can I oh, hear man, it? Oh, brother. Man. Yeah. Brother yeah. Heron, preach. <laughs> well, you know, I'm I'm just about to. No, I'm not. I don't know. You know, sometimes I do. Actually, that's one of the things <laughs> I get on these rants when they overtake me. But yes. uh, you know. W- Putting me under pressure like that certainly doesn't help. (laughs) (laughs) Brother Heron had stage shock. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing is, you know, sometimes I do get on these rants that are really great. But, it's again, it's my language machine sort of taking over, uh, and I don't have much to do with that. And I certainly can't make it happen. Yes. Uh, but, But sometimes it happens. And they're pretty good, actually. I like my most of my rants. I think are are really good. <laughs> well, yes. Well, again, good for not every audience. Again, it's designed. It's not designed, but it, it's it's not for everybody. It's for people who are just beginning to grasp this stuff. To sort of, well, I'm not quite sure how to talk about it. But I think there are a lot of people who have these ideas sort of floating around that they're only vaguely aware of. And if we can sort of solidify that as an idea in their head, that yes, these ideas are are there, <laughs> and now I can see what they are. Yes, that's that could be powerful. And with that, I think we should call it a night. Good night. Good night, Eric.